I've wanted to do a podcast with him about actual motorcycling, not dressing up in costumes mm-hmm. and putting straight pipes on because <laughs> I'm desperate for attention. Right. Coming to you from deep inside our lofty, heavily fortified bunker, located somewhere in the heart of Middle Earth. The show that doesn't shy away from tough questions or tough answers. Sit back, turn on your brain, and get ready for truth. It's a dirty job, but hey, somebody has to do it. This is the David Allen Show, uh, special, special David Allen Show edition. Um, we have with us in studio a guest today, and at the moment we just start recording, my phone decides to ring. Um, no. It's technology. <laughs> um, Lee Bruns from the, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes south of us, Watertown, South Dakota is with us. Um and I met Lee, interestingly, as a uh, because I found probably five years ago, I got uh, aco- acquainted with the um, No Agenda show. Sure. And, well, I, I got there from watching This Week in Tech with Leo Laporte and kind of made my way through that stuff into... The No Agenda Show, which is a fascinating conversation to listen to, and it's just something that I, I, I've found over the years that it's just it's entertaining and it's it's educational. Well, one of the, one of the things they do that's different than most things is they are funded by people that think there's value there, and so they will then give you money. They call it a value for value model. Well, one day I was listening, and I noticed that there was someone that had donated to their cause from Watertown. Like, huh? That's interesting. Someone with a, a a heavy winter coat company. And so I looked him up on Facebook, and I don't remember what the actual context was. I, I think I just commented in the morning or something. Yeah, I don't know what it was. Do you remember what Pro- that? Probably just something that simple. That the in the morning motto is, is kind of the universal greeting for any listener to the No Agenda podcast. Which comes from the morning zoo concept, yeah. in the morning. Hey, (laughs) traffic and weather on the 8th in the morning. Mattress and lanes. (laughs) And so from then, um, Lee has an interesting um, home in that his garage is typically available for anyone to swing by and get dirty. Yeah. And in the summer, is it still true that there's pot, there's root beer on tap? Is that we, still the case? Right. We have uh, a root beer dispenser on the north wall and a refrigerator full of popsicles at any given time. <laughs> and it really is an open door, yeah? Yeah. And it, there was a time in the past when even the local police, when they didn't have anything else going on, they'd roll up in the driveway and just hang out. <laughs> really? Yep. Yeah. And uh, we got some basic rules because we have uh, um, a fussy, and that is no smoking, um, keep the cussing to a minimum and uh, leave the place cleaner than when you arrived, which is uh, sort of a personal thing for me because I'm the one that probably made the mess to begin with. So yeah, yeah, clean up my mess for me, would you? <laughs> what are some of the other rules? Uh, if you find it out, put it away. Um, do not bring your own tools. I don't want to ever mm. wonder, is that my tool or yours? So n- do not bring your own tools. But that also means that tools in the building are available f- to use. Anyone, yeah. anything. Yep. And you've got some stuff. I mean, it's not. This isn't a. This isn't a crappy shop. 
You got stuff, right? Right. Two lathes, two mills, English wheel, pretty much any air tool you can think of. Some woodworking also. Um, you have a wood lathe? Or just a... Uh, it's a metal lathe, but I've been doing a lot of woodworking with it lately. Really? <laughs> <laughs> what is the difference? Uh, RPM. Oh. And then the actual mounting flange with the wood lathe, you normally would uh, actually screw the wood to mm -hmm. the um, plate face to spin on the chuck, whereas with the metal lathe, I run a three-jaw. Okay. Um, you could dial it in a little better with a four-jaw, but it's more time-consuming, and most of the time, I'm just carving from raw stock, so mm -hmm. it doesn't matter oh. if the part up... You're chuck. making it. I'm making it round, right. right. Um, and you have been in the motorcycle world for some years? Yeah, um, I think I got my first bike of my own was a TS-185 Suzuki, and uh, as time went past, I had an RD-350, and honestly, I could not even begin to think how many motorcycles I've owned since that time. But after enough years, you'll start figuring out that, well, rather than buy something, I can pick up something secondhand and just make it better. So then you start building custom motorcycles and doing more and more of the work yourself. But and you, of course, you also have to think that way too. Yeah. And you, but your your job, like your my the job you go to job. every morning to, is you're a machinist. Yeah. I'm a machinist now. I've been a machinist for about 25 years. Uh, prior oh, to that, nothing. It's 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> I actually ran a service department at a Ford dealership, and how I took care of it. I think there's sort of a philosophical approach to anything. But he liked how I ran the service department so much, so they offered me a job at a machine shop. Zero experience in a machining. So I had to learn everything there. So he wanted your brain. He wanted my brain again. Wow. Or attitude. That's I think cool. that's more than anything. Well, that could be. Yeah. Something that's missing in today's society a little bit. I think that's it. And, and maybe someone needs to just step out and say, um, failure is great. Everything you fail at is, was it Ben Franklin? I have, no, Edison. I have not failed. I've just figured out one more thing that didn't, didn't, didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let me scratch that off the yeah. list. <laughs> well, or, that's what we had just yesterday. We had a conversation with my kids and my wife. Um, the The boys are are struggling to learn chess, and so it's kind of a fun game. Well, we were playing, and um, my wife is not a chess player. It hasn't been. So she's not <laughs> adept at it either. Um, and so we were, her and I just played real quick. And there was, I, I had moved my queen to a spot. And this is like five moves in. Mm -hmm. I am not a good chess player. But I, I, I know enough to kind of think several steps ahead or try to at least. And there was one move where I could go up three squares straight um, if one of her pawns was moved. And that would get her in check. And I thought checkmate based on where it was. Well, without even thinking of that, she moved that pawn. Oh, perfect. So I just said, okay, I think it's a checkmate. And all the kids are, what? Huh? Already? <laughs> what? And 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 then um, regarding chess, I I listened to Jordan Peterson. So if we want to talk about him at all, at some point we can. Um, and he said something about, you know, if you, to get better at things, you need to be beat at them. Yeah. And he said, if you're constantly just smoking everyone, you're not learning. Right. He said, He said, well, like with chess, you should play people that beat you as much as you can handle. Yeah. And so it, we talked about that, and we had just talked with our uh, our eight-year-old about learning from failure and that you don't have to always win or make it perfect. You can actually learn from, from missing it. Right. 
that you know that just instantly pops to mind the special olympics motto is uh let me win but if i cannot win let me be brave in the attempt and why isn't that a motto for life right (laughs) and that it it really shows so much of the attitude we deal with with special olympics is that same i'm going to put in my best Mm -hmm. i'm going to have fun playing this sport and hopefully i become a better player over time so uh, that whole attitude at Special Olympics is that same approach, which is I'm going to play people and hopefully I can win. But if not, I'm going to uh, figure out how to succeed in learning from right. how they defeated me. Well, I, man, I just think that that's a, that's a lesson we can take in everything. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've been kind of backing up just a little bit and back into the motorcycle world. Yeah, I'm going to be all um, over the place. I'm very is, I sorry. like it. <laughs> um, I used to teach motorcycle safety when I lived in Oregon. My job was traveling about the state uh, with the state program and teaching people how to ride. Because if you were under, when I was in it, I mean, I've been here 10 years now, but when I was teaching, if you were under, I believe it was 21, you were required to take this course in order to get an endorsement to ride. And Oregon is unique in that <clears throat> the majority of traffic d- or motorcycle deaths occur in around corners. Sure. Because they have corners there. In this state where I live now, South Dakota, they don't have corners unless you get to the hills in the west. And for me, I mean, I don't even have a motorcycle anymore for that reason. I love riding on twisty roads. I don't love riding in a straight line. It's not fun. Um, for me, anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> but one of the things that they taught is how to... You know, that piece of it. And so it was kind of a unique connection that Lee and I had just because I had been in the motorcycle world at some level, not quite to the extent that you and we'll get into that because you do you still currently write for a magazine? The last article I wrote, I did an interview with uh, avid motorcycle rider and stand up comic Alonzo Bowden. Oh, nobody for for, (laughs) uh, the motor market out of Sioux Falls. So, yeah, I'm still writing. Um, just the publication I was writing for was Minnesota Motorcycle Monthly, and they've now gone on online. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if they're still going to be doing current content or just uh, keeping current on the pr- uh, prints of their existing stuff. Okay. I don't know. And you are crazy. It helps. <laughs> it's a bright sunny day. I don't know. 25 oh. degrees? That was a week ago. <laughs> right. Got screws in the tires? Let's go for a motorcycle ride. So you routinely will do that, right? Now, well, you, you know, do you ride year-round? Right. Um, put screws in the tires, and they're not just like sheet metal screws. They're actually ice screws. Bundle up, fire up the motorcycle, and at that point, what's the difference between that and a snowmobile? Well, you have to have some skill. You stick to the ice. The screws dig into the ice really good. and uh, Kid corner? Oh, yeah. No problem? Really? No problem. It's a, it's a hoot. <clears throat> there's, there's another video there of when we set up, we uh, actually carved a uh, a big oval and we were flat track racing on Lake Pelican um with the the motorcycles and uh where would that be uh i think it'll say something like fun sunday ride uh, winter in south dakota well, on the drz you, no that was just another ride around town it's one of an older one can't quite see your screen there oh there we oh, go now you can um yeah to go down which is uh crashing sucks <laughs> That was... Uh, oh, there. Right there, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that one was interesting because they're just kind of cooking around the corner. The back end comes around. 
and I high side. That's called the high side, right? <laughs> right. I tweaked my knee something awful on that tipple, and it didn't look like anything. I was limping for eight months. Oh man, <laughs> that little get off you see right there. Wow. You know, I don't have a lot of stuff on my YouTube channel, but I, some of the stuff still makes me smile. I see Tim Williams up there, and uh, who know, is he? Timmy Williams was an actor in a sketch comedy show called The Whitest Kids You Know. And it was on the Independent Film Channel for like six years in some really edgy sketch comedy. And he's now a stand-up comic and a writer and an actor, and he's just such a neat guy. And he indulges me in all sorts of silly little side projects, like the <laughs> comedians in sidecars getting chislick, or there's the quiz there where I just answered, asked him some ridiculous questions, uh uh and uh, you're gone. Okay. <laughs> it's gone. Okay. gone. All right. So uh, I'm covering Tim's lunch today. This is the easy part. But okay. this will be oh, for the you. tip. Okay. Be who gets the tip? Okay. There are uh, eight questions of uh, how well does Timmy know Timmy? These are eight questions that Timmy Williams should know the answer to. Okay. All right. First question. In reality, how long does it take to bake a batch of cookies? Ten to twelve minutes. Exactly. That's depending one on oven time, cookies. altitude. <laughs> comes into play. Yeah. All right, second question. Who shot first? Where? When? Ooh, wrong answer. The correct answer is, the correct answer is Han Solo. Han oh, shot Han Solo. First. Who would know this? Anyone who knows Star Wars would know that. Uh, how many links does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop? It's like 3,625. Wrong. Three. Ask Mr. Owl. Oh, that's right. That's too wrong. All right, who is funnier, Joey Pepitone or Brian Posehn? This is embarrassing because his name is wrong. not Trip Joey Pepitone. Oh, no. <laughs> it's Eddie. It's Eddie Pepitone. Mmm. <laughs> Is that Joey? Yeah, it's, no, I, I know him. That's Eddie. Okay. <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? Ah, uh, comedian. Correct, correct. Okay. What is Chewbacca's son's name? Lumpy. Correct. That's Who's, true. That's a real thing. Who sang Merry Christmas R2-D2 on the Star Wars Holiday Special? B. Arthur. Wrong. Oh. John Bon Jovi. <laughs> it was his very first official recording. Wow, this is entertaining. Yes. Is Timmy a dork, a geek, a dweeb, a spaz, or a nerd? A nerd. Timmy is a nerd, correct. <laughs> I Twitter handle. The oh. Twitter handle. <laughs> Thanks. The Twitter, Timmy, is timmyisanerd.com. On Facebook, at Timmy Williams. And do you have a website? Uh, TimmyWilliams.com. TimmyWilliams.com. <laughs> so, yeah, Tim's just been wonderful, and he introduced me to a lot of other comedians that I've now drug into my other little things that we do on the and site. he lives in watertown lives in watertown now he moved back so he felt it was a better place to raise his daughter now that's interesting so put thought. his parenting ahead of everything else huh the novel approach huh? and you uh how long have you been in <laughs> yeah weird um how long have you been in watertown uh Ooh, almost 30 years now. Uh, I was born in Watertown, then I moved away. I worked for Tractor Supply Corporation. I traveled from store to store and, and uh, fixed problem areas for them and ended up managing a store in Ottumwa, Iowa. And uh, again, you know, I can look back, and that was such a unique opportunity to learn so much more about elsewhere, and all I did was hang out in the bars and drink a lot. So <laughs> I, it was a real missed opportunity. But, you know, I did get some wonderful education, business training from Tractor Supply. I, I never had any post-high school schooling other than what I was able to wring out of some of my employers. Oh, with the exception of the auctioneer school. I guess I did put that out of my pocket. Wait a second. Are you an auctioneer? Yeah. 
Yeah, I went to auctioneer school back in 2006 so that I could do fundraiser auctions and try to help some uh, local charities raise money for stuff. Cool. Yeah. So but can all you break it out? Is, all auctioneering is is counting. It's a cadence, right? Uh, oh, well, see, the, the, yeah, that's the counting. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So I go, oh, that would be $2.50. Would you give me 5 Oh, you'd give me 5 Thank you. Uh, this next person, would you give me seven and a half dollars? Seven and a half? He That'd gave me five. Wonderful. Would you give me seven and a half? Would you give half? me seven and a half? Yes, I would give you seven and a half. Well, <laughs> seven and a half is nice. Um, this person over here gave me seven and a half. Now, would, would you pay me ten? Well, you would give me ten. Thank you very much. All right. So we just string that all together. All that is. All right. And then you're going to have your ring man, and he's going to kind of help you keep track of who's got the bid. So it's going to be a lot of practice. We're going to start with two and a half. Now, would it go five? Say seven and a half. Now, ten. Ten, we go twelve and a half. Say fifteen. Now, would you go seventeen and a half? Seventeen and a half sounds good. Seven and a half here is now 20. Would you go 20 now, 22 and a half, say 25. And it's keeping track of who's got the bid and how much the bid. Now, it's going two and a half, but you're auctioning off a car. Was that $250 a crack? All right. Next item is a toaster. Well, I got a dollar here now. Would it go to, say, three? And you just go individual account. Or five now, 10. Would you go 15, say 20 now, 25? So it's, it's organized counting. But then other things come into play, like in the case of, say, a fundraiser auction. Do yourself a favor. If you're putting together a fundraiser auction, round tables. Because on a round table, each person there, this is a fundraiser. These are people with there with their family and friends and spouses. So they watch each other. Each is that other's the idea? faces. And you're playing some human behavior. And that is that people like to be generous. Well, let them be generous. If they feel good about donating and impressing their let friends them. with their generosity... <laughs> let them so round tables help round tables help a lot and other human behavioral demographics like at a fundraiser auction do something for the guys follow up an item for the women and do another thing for the guys then the positioning of where in the auction you want your most desirable item don't put it early don't put it too late so positioning and the order that you auction off the item so a lot of what auctioneering is isn't necessarily the counting isn't what everyone sees, which is bid calling. So not much of the actual schooling involved the bid counting. Most of it involved demographics and human behavior. How to read the room. And how to set up your auction. Thing like that food table that's selling you Rice Krispie bars and coffee, that's trying to keep you there three hours. Because without that food counter, you're going to be gone in about 45 minutes. And keeping the people there. And you know you've only got three hours. So depending on how much stuff you've got, how much comedy needs to be involved in, a, in an auction, ah, especially a fundraiser? Uh, probably a bit more. Yeah, that's a very good point, the entertainment side of it. So you can do some fun stuff there. Like, since it's the counting part of it so simple, you can bring a 12-year-old up out of the audience and let him bid, uh, bid call an item, you know, and just fun stuff like that. Uh, play a little word game, you know. Um, we did one with hula. Hula go five, hula go, hula, hula go ten now. Right. You know, you can do some fun stuff like that. But if you're a bit of a ham, it helps. That's fascinating. <laughs> See, you learn all kinds of stuff here on the David Allen Show. <laughs> oh, man. And then, do, you, the, do you do that? As do much as call? I can. Really? Yeah. yeah. I've done, I uh, worked with ASAP Auctioneering, doing a lot, oh, so yes. many. The amount of... Uh, fundraisers and good causes that Jim Asup donates his auction service to, it, the amount of money that guy has done, um, amount of good that guy has done. So I can't. He is praise. a master. He is and funny and just the nicest guy. And in that the world. voice, my goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's an icon in the area. But 
So Dave, you know, right? Uh, Jim, oh, Asa. Jim, 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 Jim's yep. his bro- Dave's his brother. And just, yeah, just nicest guy in the world. And he's just done millions of dollars he's raised for local uh, nice. charities. What's his last name? A-E-S. A-E-S. O? O. Is there E at the end? I don't think I don't so. think there is. I have nothing on YouTube for Jim. <laughs> well, I know I have, I mean, I, I photograph a corporate event every quarter. Uh, down there in Watertown, and he they they come in and do the auction yeah. once once a year, <clears throat> and it's it, it is really fun to watch. Him. Yeah, and I remember I filmed a little clip at one point and posted it somewhere. I don't know if it was on. It's been a year or two. Um, he's got so a real finding. F- it would be insane, but his, his radio voice, my goodness. Yeah. So he's Cause K- is he not a, a radio personality? He is a radio personality. He's actually, I think, a part owner in KXLG. Okay. And the auction service and the real estate company, you know, he's just <laughs> always working. Wow. Those people. <laughs> so that's neat stuff. I, I enjoyed the auctioneering, and that was uh, the, the one bit of formal education. There you go. Oh, it was an H. up with an H. Yes. Uh, the one bit of formal education I got was the auction school I went to. And the rest of the business schooling was through Tractor Supply Corporation mm. when they were shipping me all over the place. But you get to go to some neat schools. Well, what are the odds? Let's see what happens here. <laughs> oh, time oh, no, lapse. That's time lapse. That doesn't give us any audio. Come on now, people. Yeah. Although it's his own channel with no subscribers, so that's quality. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. Let's get something together, huh? <laughs> Never mind. Wow. Well, okay, this is him interviewing on the air, I believe. Oh, David J. Law, always rounding up the most interesting guests. (laughs) And before we start, David, are Mm -hmm. you ready for this? I'm ready. Rich Ohm with, uh, well, you know, a lot of different... That's absolute, uh, like, he is classic radio voice. We're all about making water. Do you remember the Dakota call? When he used to do the Dakota call? No. I'm fairly new to this area. He would call up strangers all over the country, and I don't know where he got the phone numbers... But he's like, uh, what do you know about South Dakota? Uh, I don't know anything. Have you ever heard of the Janklow Canal? <laughs> no. Jan- Janklow Canal is the uh, the canal from the West Coast that allows uh, South Dakota to be the number one producer of inland tuna. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish they were available as a CD or a downloadable, but the, the Dakota calls were just fantastic. That's crazy. How did he... What did... Is that gone? Did he work for a different radio at that right. point? Right, and oh, they may, okay. yeah, they may not have allowed him to. Mm. <laughs> oh, and, now, and maybe caller ID killed it. <laughs> well, that's true. That could have been part of it. <laughs> Taken out by caller right. ID. Uh, l- let's go into the stand-up comedy piece of your your uh, your world. Why? Why? Because I don't know anything about it, and that sort of thing. Do something every day that scares you. So I did. A, a little acting. I did a, a couple of commercials, non-speaking roles years ago, and then I've done stage work with local community theater groups. Well, how long ago? Oh, not not too long, right? Or was it? It was. Okay. I was back when I was in Ottumwa, Iowa, and I think it was Ottumwa Community Transit, and I was like passenger number three getting on the bus, you know? So there were non-speaking roles. <laughs> even even s- on stage? 
I've done on stage, okay. and, and I, of course, I had speaking roles on mm-hmm. stage and stuff. But yeah, I haven't done that in a long time too. That was before I got married, before uh, when I did that. But uh, um, but that's all someone else's words. Someone else writes it. So stand up comedy, that's all you. So it was something I was. I broke and I watched for years trying to break down why is that funny? What made that funny? Why is that a joke? How does that joke? Where's the punchline? And like anything mechanical, break it down to its base elements, stare at it for a while and try to figure out what made that work and why. Because there's some stand-up comedy when you actually break down the wording, you go, well, there's no joke there. And yet that was genius. So that's all the performer. So that's the delivery piece of it. That's the delivery. And there's a lot of very successful comedians out there where their material is a five out of ten. <laughs> and yet these guys are fantastic because their mm-hmm. stage presence is so cool. So stand-up comedy was interesting to me and it was uh, uh, intriguing because that's all you. It's your material. You're not just repeating an Ole and Lena joke up there, no matter how good the Ole and Lena joke is. But that's all you. So it's really you in your purest form. So um, there's open mics. So my first open mic was at the Goss, and I put that up. How long ago? I had it on YouTube. I recently took it down. I was looking for it. I couldn't find it. <laughs> I recently took it down because I've come so far since then. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, too, because I put it up because I wanted to record, this is the first time, this is my material, and all anyone could do is tell me what I did wrong. Mm. Which has value, except I was tearing it apart myself so much, I didn't need any more. Right. Right. So, like, oh, you walked around, go the mic mic cord was tangled. Well, I don't know what that silly lap was. And, (laughs) you know, everyone was nitpicking, and I went, okay, well, I'm not really putting this up for anyone but me, so I just locked it up private. Mm. <laughs> so maybe I'll post another video some other time. But I've got um, I've got a five-minute set, a 10-minute set. I've probably got an hour's worth of material. Really? And I have yet to even do the 10-minute set once without messing something up. Now, the audience doesn't know I messed anything up, sure. but I do. So until I can do that 10 mm-hmm. minutes without messing anything up, then I don't want to add to it and do the full one hour. But there's so much of this stuff that think, well, I could never write a joke. How would you write a joke? And you realize there's a lot of stuff going on in your day-to-day life that is the joke. You just didn't write it down. And it's fantastic humor when presented in a comedy environment. Well, and isn't good stand-up anecdotes yeah. that, that are told really well? Example. I'll show you. I'll tell you one joke. All right, so I do a lot of work with Special Olympics due to my, my 15-year-old daughter's special needs, so I got involved in Special Olympics, and I love Special Olympics. By the way, normally in an interview, you wouldn't start doing material. I get that. But it's to show you an example about something that went on in my life and how this is now a joke in my stand-up act. And this is a joke that other people, if they did it, you might pause. Well, how is it okay? Well, okay, we'll break it down further after I tell you the joke. So here's the setup. Go. I've got a 15-year-old daughter, special needs, and that got me involved in Special Olympics, and I really like Special Olympics. We have so much fun at Special Olympics. Um, I remember my very first Special Olympics event I ever, ever went to was a bowling tournament in Aberdeen. Anyone here bowl? Everyone do you bowl, Craig? I, I, last night I bowled. All right, so... For the uh, first time in a long time. Do you know what a handicap is? All right, that's so... <laughs> if, uh, 
people it's who, extra points. You extra get points off, right off the bat. Yeah, right off the bat. If you're not as good as the next guy, right? So I went to this bowling tournament in Aberdeen, the playing field, Special Olympics bowling tournament in Aberdeen, and I watched a guy bowl a 265. That is a fantastic score, a 265. And I went up to him afterwards and said, 265. Is that your average? He said, Yeah, usually maybe 260. Wow. What is your handicap? He says, Down syndrome, jerk. <laughs> True story. Right? So this went past, and I didn't even chuckle at the time. And it took me a while to go, Oh, that was kind of pretty funny, actually. <laughs> But it's a true story, and this is the stuff that goes past you every day, and you just don't stop and process it. Where, hey, that was a joke, and that was a good joke. But now, the next time. Well, if some schmo who isn't a, a regular volunteer coach in Special Olympics starts making joke about people with disabilities, people with special needs, you better tread really lightly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, want, I want someone who's in the trenches there right. and under, really right. understands and isn't, isn't mocking, isn't degenerating, isn't devaluing people as human beings. So there's humor in everything. But you don't have to be mean with it. Yes. So, yeah, like, wow, you've got jokes about Special Olympics and disabilities in your comedy? Yes, I do. Because you live with it every day. Yep. And you want to see the people that laugh about it the most? Talk to the parents. (laughs) <laughs> oh, and there's some dark humor, yeah. too. And we chuckle that to ourselves between each other, and then we would never consider making those same wisecracks to anyone who didn't also have a child with uh, special needs, with an intellectual disability. Do you have a, uh, like, like a, it's what would make your stand-up, like, get, like, that would be, like, success in your... To, uh... I will not call myself a comic until I get paid to do it. I will not call myself a writer until I get paid to do it. I've been paid to do it plenty. Um, I wouldn't call myself a machinist. I would not call myself anything until I've been paid to do it. So I have a T-shirt on order, and it simply says, I'm not homeless, I'm a comedian. And when that T-shirt shows up in my house, I will be hanging it on my wall. I will not wear that T-shirt until I get paid to do it. So once I get paid to do it, I'll keep doing it, but that's... All I'm marking it as is a success. I, I'm, I'm not aiming as a, as a career. A lot of my comedian friends, that's their, they want mm-hmm. that to be their life. It's not my life. But I like to ride off-road motorcycle. So I watched all these really great off-road motorcycle riders go, and I got into off-road motorcycle riding, not because I thought, I'm going to be the best off-road motorcycle rider. It's the best seat in the house. Right. Out amongst them. You want to really love stand-up comedy, get on stage you want to really enjoy racing cars get behind the wheel go race cars you know so the best seat in the house is in it so i'm just looking at it as a a, my love of the art of stand-up comedy the best seat in the house is on the stage Mm. and then you get to meet these people and i I got to watch dan bublitz jr put together a joke um dan bublitz had a uh, uh i don't know the technical term but it's a lazy eye and I said, oh, my daughter's got a lazy eye, too. Do you wear the patch? He said, what? Well, the, the patch, you know, you put the patch over your good eye, and it makes your lazy eye work harder. And so this was a joke that got put together. Well, we watched it kick around. I think Nathan uh, Hultz was there, too. And I watched this joke develop for Dan to become part of his actual stand-up act. And he says, uh, I, used, uh, I wear the patch, and it was pretty good, and... You know, women really dig a man in an eye patch because they think you're a pirate, and then you realize that you just want the booty. 
Nice. <laughs> right. So I got to watch the art uh, mm-hmm. and really talented guys like Dan Bublitz Jr. and Nathan Holtz. I get to meet these guys and hang with these guys and watch how the fudge is packed. And those guys are just fantastic and the art of stand-up comedy. So it's like anything else. You dig in and do it and you can appreciate the professionals by doing it as an amateur. Mm-hmm. What makes someone like Seinfeld so good? The ability to see the absurdity in everyday life. Because his comedy, and for for me, is it's so real. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he is just relaying what just happened to him out on the sidewalk. Yeah. And it's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. He's just just a master. And identifying it in other people and just... No, it's just identifying... And it's the same stuff that's going past everyone else, too. And these guys have actually stopped, and they're identifying the jokes as they happen. Mm -hmm. But these same jokes are happening to you and I and everyone else every day. If you're out talking to other human beings, but it's just (laughs) the little kid from across the street. His name was Diedrich, and he came over to me one time when he first met me, and he said, you're Sarah's dad? Yeah. And you live here? (laughs) (laughs) I, I felt bad. For, I felt bad from it first. Yeah. Like, oh, he just never seen a dad that actually stayed with the family. But then he adds, "What's the matter? Can't afford your own place." Oh man! All right. So the last line <laughs> is me. Yeah. The first line that was Diedrich. Wow. So this stuff is going on all the time. The same comedy that the professionals and the real artists are showing you on stage is the exact same stuff that's going through your. Life every day, except they're slowing down and letting it soak in mm-hmm. and writing it down. That's it. Hmm. And getting paid a lot to do it. They're doing well. <laughs> yeah. Some of them anyway. Yeah. There's a wonderful, just a, a thriving stand-up comedy scene based out of Sioux Falls. And I've gone down and done some open mics down there. And they're just so supportive. They're just wonderful people. The comics helping each other out giving each other tips giving each other rides to shows oh i get to be a feature hey you want to be an opener and helping each other out and it's just so the, i mean you can bring people with you oh yeah because you day need long. a uh, a warm-up an opener a feature someone to like absorb all the tomatoes that get thrown right. and then yeah. yeah and you know get the get the crowd warmed up get them in the mood to laugh mm-hmm. you know who uh who's a mainstream comic that that currently you find as kind of the top of your George funny. Wallace is just so good. George Wallace is fantastic. Um, you know, and he's, wow, he's been at it forever. I mean, uh, Dom Irera is just so fantastic. And at the local level, there's a new guy out of Sioux Falls, Mason Maxwell, I think his name might be. And his material is brilliant. Um, some of the guys I got to see, uh, Nathan Holtz, of course. Nathan Holtz is fantastic. Dan Bublitz Jr. is highly successful. And these are local guys that if they were in the L.A. comedy scene, mm-hmm. you'd have already heard of them. Really? Yeah. And they're in Sioux Falls, and they've got day jobs, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and if they were in L.A., these guys, Dan Bublitz Jr., Nathan Holtz. And Mason Maxwell's only been at it about six months, but I saw some of his material, and he is fantastic. And he's just getting his feet under him. and But he's, he's in Sioux Falls, so that's a big advantage. And, of course, in my case, being in Watertown, I've got a 100-mile drive. Mm-hmm. So until the warmer weather comes where I can fire up my road bike and zip down to Sioux Falls on a Wednesday night. For a gallon night, of gas, right. right. Mm-hmm. 
Um, what do you do for fun? <laughs> and at this point, is it tinkering about the garage? Yeah, uh, I do a lot of um, mobility adaptations for people with uh, uh, physical disabilities to help get them back on the road. Um, building uh, on the road. Yeah, uh, on, on, on a motorcycle. Motorcycle. Yeah. So, um, so you're adapting motorcycle use for people that couldn't climb on a bike, a two wheel bike themselves, and ride it. Exactly. Correct? Yeah. Um, if you go back to my YouTube page again, there's a, a motorcycle I was working on prototyping that has uh, a sidecar. There you go. Uh, scroll down where it says wheelchair sidecar rig. So go to that one. So uh, I built this sidecar rig. And you can just turn the audio down. The audio is there. Um, that was a 750 Honda with an automatic mm-hmm. transmission. I built the sidecar rig on the side and did uh, linked brakes and uh, hand control so he can operate so everything is at the hands and you can run it from your wheelchair so the ramp by the time i was done you can deploy the ramp roll your wheelchair up in retrieve uh, retract the ramp from your wheelchair and operate the entire rig from your wheelchair i think the folding chair you have on there is pretty fascinating <laughs> yeah was, i was this was just uh proof of concept mm-hmm. the linked brakes were a bit of a trick because the rear wheel on the honda originally was a drum brake which made it difficult to convert to the hand control. So I turned a, a special axle down to fit a Harley Davidson wheel under there and then made a brake caliper mount. Um, and then control rods, of course, go over for the handlebars that are mounted on the sidecar there. So it's just a linkage to the to the motorcycle. Right, yeah. So right. just like you would adapt a car for mail delivery. Yeah, yeah. And just uh, run control rods over and everything. And Does this... The headstock for the sidecar is vertical, and the headstock on the motorcycle is about a 15-degree angle there. So that actually was a little bit getting that linkage to work. So you see, that it kind of comes into play there, too, because mm-hmm. you're working with two different angles. The handlebars work, work on a straight horizontal, while the headstock of the motorcycle is at about a 15-degree angle. So that took a little bit of... So it's got kind of a power steering effect as you're working those two angles against each other with the hypotenuse of your triangulation from the bars back over to the headstock of the motorcycle. So, Does this do anything to the uh, road legality of a motorcycle? Or do we need to move on? <laughs> they ha- There's a bunch of this stuff where they haven't, it's never crossed their radar, so they haven't looked at it. Okay. Um, my friend Pete Wage, he made the statement one time I gave him a ride in a sidecar. He said, if you ever took a congressman for a ride in one of the, these things, they'd make him illegal. So... <laughs> so the less we bring sidecars and custom adaptations in front of people who like to pass more laws, the better. But a sidecar is not a novelty. It's not a novelty, but they're an odd duck. I'm writing an article right now for uh, HappyWrench.com. Wanted me to write an article on sidecars. And because you're taking a single-track vehicle, the motorcycle, and making it into a multi-track vehicle, which On operate- the side, though. Right. And it's, it's, it's not, not like a three-wheeler. Right. Right. Now, the three-wheelers, um, the old-school one with one wheel in front and mm-hmm. two in back, they're a terrible design. They're awful. They're just so awful. Just but, for stability, right? Right. And now Can-Am makes the ones, a tadpole design, mm-hmm. two wheels in front. Those are amazing. Well, d- didn't you do, was it last year you did a, a road review? I did of a road one of those? review of the Can-Am Spider, and I can't. Is it a not... dynamite machine? <sighs> so good. Really? Yeah, I got to ride that back-to-back with the Harley-Davidson Is... Tri-Glide, and honestly, if you ride the two back-to-back, 
no one would choose the Harley other than it's prettier. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason to get the Harley over the Can-Am. Now, it's does the, prettier. Does the seat position angle in a corner? No. Or so this is straight flat. Straight so this is like riding a driving a spider car, kind of the Exactly. The, the, it's uh, got uh bank sense in- indicators, so if the one inner inside tire starts getting light around a corner, it backs off the power and keeps all three wheels on the ground. They have traction control, they've got anti lock brakes. Oh, they're just so well designed. Wow. They're fantastic. It's I mean they're not cheap either, right? No, but then when you start looking at the Tri-Glide, you're looking at $30,000, and you can get into the Can-Am Spider brand new with all the latest and greatest and fantastic technology for a little over twenty. Wow. So for ten grand less, you get a indescribably superior product, but it's not as pretty. How did you get that? Um, <laughs> and how did you work out to where you did that review? Did they loan you one for They loaned a me one for a couple of days. I um, started writing for Easy Rider magazine many years ago, and that turned into some writing for the Horseback Street Choppers. So after you get enough credits writing, then they're less hesitant to... To uh, give you a bike for a while. Give you a bike and say, here, take it for a few days. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you think. And then, of course, <laughs> there's that open-end part of it. You might not like it, and you owe it to the integrity of the craft to say... Hey, this is bad. Yeah, but will they then uh, get upset? They won't give you another one. Okay. I was gonna say, well, it's like uh, Tesla and Jeremy Clarkson right. a few years ago on Top he was, Gear. Yeah. He Clarkson was... burned them. But you got to understand it going into Top Gear, too. Top Gear, as much as the general public might think of them as a review. No way. <laughs> right. They went in and they slanted an it. Entertainment To show. say terrible things about the Tesla. It was yeah. very unfair. Mm-hmm. So Tesla had legitimate complaints there. Yeah. Uh, and and I love watching Top Gear. Have you? Do you watch the Grand Tour? Uh, some I watch very little television. I always feel guilty if I'm sitting watching television. I should be doing something else. Mm, you know, there's a, a <laughs> Adobe. They make all the video and photo editing software I use, um, and most of the world uses actually. Um, they have a couple people that their job title. <laughs> this lady, her name is Julianne Cost. I saw her in a, a forum at an event in L.A. a couple of years ago, and fascinating woman her title is photoshop evangelist like <laughs> that is her job and there's another guy his uh russell brown i think he's an evangelist for the product which i love the concept because their job is to sell this thing yeah they go out and they talk about how phenomenal they are they hype it up and they rah rah well in this uh forum she talked about um at her house she's a single lady she's probably late 40s i would assume um, I probably should be careful there. Um, and she said she has a treadmill. And she has determined and made a rule in herself that she will not watch television unless she's exercising. And she said, so now she hangs clothes on her treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but, and by default, doesn't watch TV. Yeah. And it's interesting. She said, why would I sit for hours a day and just consume someone else's creation when I could be creating. Yeah. And uh, it's so easy, though, to fall into that. Well, I'll just I'll just sit and watch. And so then oh, the next show, next episode. And so, I mean, your thumb gets tired. And now Netflix has removed the option of thumb that it plays the next one without even touching it for like five <laughs> episodes. And then it will say, oh, are you still watching? But for the most part, it will just keep rolling. Yeah. You can literally sit there and do nothing. Right. In and the it summertime, will bring you the next one. I go out in the summertime and just go out to the garden. There's always a weed to pull. Mm-hmm. There's Mr. McGregor. 
Yeah, you know, <laughs> there's there's always something to do outside. Oh, that looks a little raggy. Maybe mm-hmm. I should, uh, you know, grab a weed whacker and knock that back a little bit. You know, the the thought reference to the Grand Tour though, um, in a couple episodes ago, because they just finished their last, the latest season, and it again. I watch that show because I think the guys are phenomenal presenters. Right. It, the production is insane. The imagery is gorgeous. Well, they reviewed the latest Tesla, which is a big deal because they had big lawsuit with the BBC. Tesla right. did. And um, and it was awesome because he <laughs> they, they made it look like, and then it's, it's TV. You can't believe anything they're saying. Mm. But <clears throat> they've <coughs> they filled the car with the legal team. <laughs> and Jeremy. And so as he's going along, they were correcting what he was saying, telling him what he should say. And it, it, so that, that was hel- clever yeah. that they p- played it that way. And I, I, I just, I love that idea yeah. that you could play off of that. Um, yeah. And, you know, it turns out that oh, Tesla's f- making a sweet ride. My favorite episode of Top Gear was when they gave him each, I think they took him to Vietnam and they had to ride from oh, one end of Vietnam yes. to the other. All right, so that actually that was on a, like the little um, Boda Boda Vespa type motorcycle, yeah. right? Well, that actually came out after I got invited to do the cheap bike challenge for Minnesota Motorcycle Monthly. We were each given three hundred dollars to build a motorcycle, and uh, I pieced together a Kawasaki four hundred and a four forty frame, and I used the wiring harness off a of Harley, and I patched this thing together, and then. Every hundred miles, you had another challenge. There was a drag racing challenge, a motocross challenge. Then you had to ride another hundred miles, and uh, um, that reminded me. It, but the the Vietnam show for uh, Top Gear came out after we had done the cheap bike challenge, so that was kind of neat. That two different production companies mm-hmm. came up with the same idea <laughs> at about the same time. Chances are their budget was much higher. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So, so that was kind of neat. Then the cheap bike challenge, yeah. and then I got to, I wrote the article about that for Minnesota Motorcycle Monthly, and that was fun. Um, one guy had a KLR 250. Um, one guy had a 450 Honda that leaked, so he dumped a bunch of oil seal stop leak in a unit construction Honda engine. Oh, it stopped leaking. Stopped and doing, stopped running. It stopped doing anything. Yeah, like, oh, you, you can't do that. So why? Like with that specific engine, why is that? Oh, because the, the engine, the transmission, primary drive, clutch pack all use the same oil. So when you dump things like stop leak in, that stuff is intended for cars where the engine, the transmission all separated. is all separated. Oh, no. So it didn't <laughs> technically harm the engine. What it did was mess up the transmission and clutch assembly so that the thing would no longer move. <laughs> I think it still ran. It just wouldn't move. <laughs> so it... And it still leaked too. I mean, but but that made it like done. Yeah, the bike ended like, up on the trailer. Oh man, <laughs> that was the end of it. How long was that? How long was that? Uh, that was about a four hundred mile ride. Okay, one on, day on one or, day, oh, and man. on bikes that you patch together for three hundred dollars. Yeah, the article's online. You can Google that. Bring Interesting. That. Minnesota Motorcycle Monthly Cheap Bike Challenge. When was that? Mm, boy, I bet it's been darn near ten years now. Is that publication in existence still? They are online only now. Hmm. I did get the rights to LeeBruns.com 
So I do want to put together a site that links to all this sort of fun what stuff. What do you mean you got the rights to that? I just went and bought the URL. Oh, oh, but you didn't have to get it from somebody. No. no. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Although Jason Lee Bruns, the musician, every time you do a Google search, you get a whole bunch of stuff from Lee Brun, uh, Jason Lee Bruns. So <laughs> yeah. I should like him on Twitter and track him more just to... <laughs> <laughs> Every name right. Lebron's follows each other. Right. <laughs> I haven't got his yeah. mail yet. Is he good? Uh, I'll be honest, I haven't actually looked at his music that much. But mm. he sure is proliferous. I'll but, give him but that. But you own the domain. I got Lebron's.com, and I need to put together a site because I do some, I make wooden spoons and tops, the aluminum tops. Yeah? So, you know, little stuff like that. And the wooden spoons are made from the... Uh, branches that fall off my maple tree so in the spring when i'm tapping the tree to make the maple syrup i pick oh, up brother another thing my goodness uh, <laughs> no wonder the, you don't have time to watch tv <laughs> <laughs> so i make the maple syrup in the spring and i gather up the branches and make them into wooden spoons and then people like the wooden spoons no wooden spoons alike <laughs> so do you just hand whittle them or do you i turn them i yeah i carve the initial profile on the wood on the uh, lathe mm-hmm. and then get to work on them with uh, other small smaller tooling to eh, make a wooden spoon out of maple. Because we, last summer, my dad bought a, a real wood lathe. Yeah. And that's been really fun to, yeah. to start working on yeah, it in the plans. winter. And we haven't done anything since Christmas, but um, yeah. I, that was our Christmas gifts this year as I made, I don't know, five or six different bowls for yeah. people. And that's just fun. Oh, it's a hoot. And not as easy as you would think, <laughs> but but it is a blast to do and and then trying to, Finish them and you know try to make all that. Yeah, that go. It's been really, really kind yeah, of a fun hobby. Did we talk about the jacket company? That was kind of a no, neat thing no. And that again, this is coming back to how we actually <laughs> met. Is Bruns Clothing <laughs> would help produce the No Agenda Show? Yeah. Well, um, Bruns Clothing was a neat project. What it was is I was in uh, getting some screen printing done there in Watertown, and the screen printer had their jackets that they made there just so they could do the embroidery and screen printing on. And I said, wow, are these, I don't need any screen printing or anything. Where are these jackets sold? They said, oh, we'll we'll make them for you. But nobody knew about it. They were just like completely quiet about that they had the ability to make these jackets. And I said, well, you should do an online store. And they went, well, we really don't know anything about that. So I teamed up with them and created Bruns Clothing. And it was a JIT, just-in-time manufacturing concept, where you'd go online, fill out your form, uh, I want a Byron cord collar. I want the 10 ounce duck cloth. Um, I'd like two inside pockets on the left and one inside pocket on the right. I'd like it four inches taller um, with an open bottom rather than a elastic waistband um, with a hood. Snap on, please. Um, and so everything was everything. custom built. Right. And we'd make each jacket to order. So our inventory levels were, were zero. The only thing we had on hand were raw materials. Mm-hmm. We didn't carry any jackets on hand. And it worked surprisingly well with the one flaw, and that is you'd get buried in November and December. So when it got cold. When it got cold. So you couldn't keep staff, and you can't train someone for, for two, two months. months. Right. So what we needed to do was expand into international sales, taking advantage of axial tilt of the planet so that we could be selling jackets in the southern hemisphere when it was summer up here. Mm-hmm. That way we could increase our employment. So that's when I got to learn about international trade, and I found out that pretty much every country tariffs the heck out of USA-made goods. Now, you can ship anything to the U.S., have at it, no, no problem. But US, going the other way doesn't work? No, not even Canada. 
What? Can- Canada, a supposed North American free trade. Good luck. Try it. They just changed the name. They don't call it a tariff. They call it an import tax. Right. So we couldn't send stuff to China. We couldn't send stuff to Australia. And they say, well, here's how you get around that. See, you chuck a birthday card in it, send it under a private name rather than your business name. So you start having to jump mm. through all these hoops. And the bottom line was there's a trade war going on and the U.S. isn't fighting back. So current administration. Now, Do you think they are? it's different now? Current administration just threw a volley. And how's the phraseology go? Um, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality uh-huh. looks like discrimination. Mm-hmm. So the current administration has decided to start fighting back and everyone's screaming They're bloody They're panicking mur- right They're now. They're panicking. Yeah, because you've been able to run roughshod over U.S. goods for so long that when we're trying to level the playing field. And, of course, any discussion to that end says, oh, you're a huge Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. No, I am not. However, this fiasco with international trade has gotten just so rude. So a friend did send me a link to a WTO, World Trade Organization, and they were showing complaints against the U.S. for protectionism and then the complaints from the U.S. And the nature of the complaints actually reflected that, and that is some of the stuff that they were complaining about the U.S., um, as opposed to the things that the U.S. was complaining about them. The nature of the complaints really bears out kind of what I'm saying, which is if you're making a jacket in the U.S. and you're trying to send it to China, there's a lot of surprising number of Americans living in China. Australia was a wonderful market for us, except and shipping wasn't bad to Australia. It was the tariff issue. Really? Yeah. Like what, Europe. What kind, of, what kind of percent? About 50%. 50 so if yeah. you have a hundred fifty dollar jacket, it turns it instantly into a two hundred twenty five dollar jacket. Huh? Harley Davidson has a plant in India. Why does Harley Davidson deliberately have... like that's so they can ship from India to those countries? Well, initially, it was the Harley because India with their two class structure, they've got a wealthy class. Mm-hmm. So uh, people in India wanted Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson says, "Yeah, we'd like to bring motorcycles there," and the government of India says, "Yeah, there'll be a one hundred percent tariff." So Harley says, what if we build the bikes there? So they set up a plant to build Harley-Davidson's in India. Well, For India. For, um, that's the initial claim. But if you've got a plant, would you have two plants for the same motorcycle, one in the U.S. and one in India? The answer is no. So now so those they bikes can are build them in India and ship, ship them, them to, to the U.S. US without, without a tariff issue. Holy but cow. if we build them in the U.S. and Harley-Davidson has a, a plant in Brazil, same reason. The ones for Brazil stay in Brazil and South America. The ones in India are coming back to the U.S. So all those jobs that are being employing people in India for Harley-Davidson were supposed to be American jobs, but now they're jobs in India. So I saw a CNN article, and they said, oh, this uh, tariff that uh, Trump brought up about Harley-Davidson's in India doesn't even apply to them because they have a plant there. Well, yeah, why do you think they have a plant there? (laughs) They're getting around the tariff by doing that. But every one of those jobs at that plant in India was supposed to be an American job, but the tariffs that India was hitting on the American products. Sir. Do you think it can change? I mean, the, the stuff that oh, the, ed, be the current admin's trying to do, I mean, it yesterday supposedly tanked the stock market because he right. talked about removing un, uh, tariffs on steel, I think. It was a 25% tariff on imported <clears throat> steel and aluminum. And targeted tariffs. So I think he approached it, he went, all imported. Well, no, because Canada isn't killing us. Mm-hmm. Actually, Europe isn't killing us. It's the countries that don't have environmental and uh, a minimum wage. China. 
and other countries like that. We can compete against Europe just fine. If you can't compete against Europe, um, that's on you. Mm. But if you can't compete against a place that does not have to follow any environmental laws, mm-hmm. well, that's on them. So, yeah, I am fully in agreement of tariff uh, on countries that do not have environmental protection and human behavior, uh, uh, labor laws and mm-hmm. safety laws equal or at least vaguely comparable to the U.S. Go ahead. But Canada? No, you don't need a tariff Canada. But, <laughs> how, I mean, how do you, at some level, how do you police those, um, like, say, the, the OSHA standard? How would you police that in India? Yeah, good question. Good question. I don't have all in the... In China. Answers. Yeah, how would you? Taiwan. Right. Yeah, when there's a mining disaster in China, you know, look at the number mm-hmm. of coal miners. So, yeah. you know, something as simple as coal mining in the U.S., if if five men get killed in a coal mine, that's a... Oh, that's huge. If 500 men get killed in China in a coal yeah. mine disaster, it's awful. Yeah. It's all And, and common, you know, another 65 got killed. Right. So, yeah, as for enforcement, well... I don't know, develop that, look into it, figure out a way. But right now, this idea that everything can come into the U.S. wide open, but anything going back out, well, we're not going to let you do that. Well, because, yeah, isn't the EU just panicking and claiming that the U.S. is now being mean mm-hmm. because it's unfair? Well, how is it unfair to to level that playing field? Right. Yeah. And I, I, I to a degree, I'm going to have to agree with the EU, and that is, we don't have an import-export issue that big with Europe. They have safety. They have wage laws. They have, that's not the stuff that's killing us. You know, you look at the restrictions on how steel is made um, with the smokestacks and the scrubbers in the U.S. compared to how they make that same steel in China. By the way, the machine shop I work at, we don't get Chinese uh, steels and aluminums anymore because the quality was so inconsistent terribly inconsistent we couldn't stand it so yeah we're not using it anyway who is someone is place yeah places that maybe they uh they don't nobody wants to carry inventory so you need jit to some degree just in time you want you don't want to be sitting on piles of inventory well if you get a bad batch of material from a guy in toledo he can get you your replacement material and Frankly, they rarely have bad material coming from any foundries in the U.S. Mm -hmm. The consistent quality is a uh, standard of American processing. China, on the other hand, (laughs) you might get different stuff every time, and if it's not right, how long is it going to take them to get your replacement materials? Well, that's that's true, and I see that a year and, well, right after Apple released the iPhone 7, which removed the headphone jack, a company jumped out on Kickstarter and made a product that plugs into the bottom of the phone and then gives you a headphone jack and a charge point. Ah. So you can do that together at the same time. Because currently, I cannot charge my phone and listen to anything unless it's Bluetooth. Okay. And that drives me crazy because I have very expensive custom-made headphones that have to plug in. Yeah. And in order to use them, I have to run on battery only or I can't. Yeah. And that's awesome when you're traveling. It's no big deal here at work or, you know, around town. But if I'm on an airplane all day long, I have to then decide. At some point, my battery's going to die and i got to charge. <laughs> <clears throat> well, this product looks gorgeous. They did the right thing in making it look absolutely phenomenal. I bought it in 
Well, it's been more than a year, and I have yet to see it. And I have been in <laughs> multiple communications with the company. And their claim is, well, the first batch we got was not to standard. It's all China. Yeah. And then the next batch, well, it was hit and miss. And then the, the, the paint chipped off. And then uh, it didn't work with the new iOS update. And then, and I just the other day got a message from them that said, well, you should expect to see it. Because I'm at this point, everybody, if you look at the comment section of that Kickstarter, everyone is demanding their money back. Which is good luck. Yeah. That money's gone. Oh, totally. <laughs> and so it's either a scam, which I don't think it is, but I don't know. I think Kickstarter would have a problem if it turned out to be a scam. Yeah. Um, or they just are incompetent, which it's either the company that made it's incompetent with who they went to for supply, or the supply company is just a ripoff, which is possible. Yeah. Um, but th- they told me that I should expect to see shipping after the Chinese New Year, which was two weeks ago. <laughs> I still don't have anything. Really? Yeah. Uh, and so th- this is that Chinese manufacturer concept. Right. There's yeah. a company called uh, The Music Group. They own a lot uh, a lot of uh, audio gear company. Uh, Midas is a company they own. That's a high-end um, digital or an audio, live, live sound console company. Uh, $150,000 for some of these big audio production rigs that they sell. They own a company called Behringer. They own a company called uh, Clark Technic. It's an uh, interface company. Anyway, th- so they <clears throat> this big music group, they own this a bunch of little, littler audio companies that do different things. Well, Behringer, years ago, 20 years ago, they were they made their name because they bought other companies and they backward engineered them and ripped them off. Absolutely ripped them off. But because they were over somewhere in Asia, yeah. there was no recourse. And you could get a pretty decent product from Behringer if it was a rack mount type unit. But anything standalone was usually crap. And so they created this really bad name for themselves because they started putting out lots of crap that you'd buy. It was cheap, but it fell apart. Yeah. Well, then they um, they bought some bigger names and got some bigger manufacturing. And they got big enough to where they could actually create the manufacturing in-house. And so they went away from outsourcing their manufacturing and built a huge city, essentially, in, I don't know if it's in China or Taiwan. I'm not sure exactly. Um, so, But they own a city <laughs> that now manufactures everything in-house. And their products have gone insane quality. Oh, super. Price is still ridiculous low. Yeah. I mean, you, you can get, like, at uh, I one of the things I do on the side is audiovisual consulting for churches. Um. And our church, we put in a digital mixer from Behringer about two, three years ago. Now, 10 years ago, when digital consoles came about, which a digital, basically it's a computer that has a bunch of routing internally. So you can eliminate lots of external wired in um, products that do different things to the sound and route it differently. Well, they were, I mean, you couldn't even touch a digital console for less than 20 grand. I mean, it was crazy. And even now, you you can spend $300,000 on some still, but they're just insane in what they can do. But this Behringer product is $2,000, and it does what, what 10 years ago you couldn't get, you couldn't touch a machine for 20 grand that could do what this thing will do. And so they've been able to somehow flood the market and keep the the cost outrageously low yeah 
And so now everyone else is trying to play catch up in that price point. And the console that I have here that I just got is a different company that finally, finally named Personas. They finally made it. They were early to the digital game, but they did a weird hybrid product that was crap. But they're in Louisiana. That's where they're based out of. I don't know where their manufacturing's at, but that's where they're headquartered at. Um, but it's still, you cannot beat Behringer, that yeah. company, for cost at all. And now it's because they do, they manufacture that product in-house. Neat. That they're big enough that they can. Yeah. I've watched the Chinese motorcycle manufacturing. Their quality level are still so awful. But you go, not that far. Go to Taiwan. Oh, amazing. Really? Oh, and uh, Korea's come a long way, too. Korea and Taiwan are making some pretty darn good motorcycles right now. I would buy a Kimco motorcycle just as quickly as something from Honda Suzuki. Kawasaki. Really? Yeah. Kimco is doing some really great stuff. Can you get them? Yeah. Yeah. We've got a Kimco dealer, I think, here in Millbank. What? Yeah. Or Ortonville. Uh, was that the Go Fasters? I think so. Really? I think they might be a Kimco dealer. And they're quality. And that's a legit product. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kimco is wonderful. They what make some what great do stuff. they make? Like Mostly scooters, dual sports, scooters and quads. Okay, and they're just starting to get going on smaller motorcycles, and then their sizes will increase over time. Mm -hmm. But their quality's there, and their parts support, and their tech support, and uh, yeah, and their prices are higher than China, but well, still well below Japan. But uh, the quality is Japan level quality, really. Yeah, because they, I mean, they are. This is Yamaha, Toyota. And, well, in, in the motorcycle world, Yamaha, Honda, that's Japanese. Right? Yamaha, Honda, Kawasaki, yeah. Suzuki. And they are, yeah, yeah, they're all pretty much like on par, aren't they? Kawasaki's down a little really? bit. Is that new or has that always been the case? That's always been the case. Um, and none of these companies is kind of interesting with the Japanese motorcycle. So Honda, they make cars, they make motorcycles, they make robots, they make jet airplanes. They make the connectors that go on the ends of your cables. So Honda does? Right. They, <laughs> so they're, uh, surprisingly, they're, mm -hmm. they own a good chunk of Showa, who makes suspensions for a lot of other companies, including Harley-Davidson's. They own a big chunk of Kian, which is a carburetor and fuel injection division. So Honda's very big. Yamaha, of course, well-known in the musical instrument yeah. industry. Suzuki. They make some of the best uh, horn instruments. Yeah. Yamaha, awesome pianos. Suzuki is a car manufacturer drums. that also makes yeah. motorcycles. They make a lot of cars. Kawasaki trains and large ocean-going tanker ships. So Kawasaki's What? They're a train company? They make all your big bullet trains. Really? Yeah, yeah. And the big tanker ships, those are Kawasaki's. And the, tr the big bullet trains, those are Kawasaki's. Wow. So their power sports division is like 13% of the company. It's a little sliver of what the actual company is. Yeah, or back in the day, they were called Kajita Walkies. <laughs> 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 so, so, you know, the diversification of some of those companies is kind of neat. So Kimco, I think, is just a scooter company, hmm. you know. But, like, Mitsubishi is kind of neat that way, too. You know, Mitsubishi made the airplanes, and they, uh, uh, they of course, made a lot of Mitsubishi cars, and they make a lot of electronics. Well, even symbols go to your um, grocery store, and you see the three-diamond pineapple and the three-diamond mandarin oranges. That's a division of Mitsubishi. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, three-diamond, yeah. <laughs> So there's, you know, these the diversification has allowed those companies to thrive. Mm -hmm. They've got what about like Triumph and Ducati? Those are they're standalone. Ducati, I believe, is actually a division of. Mm, it's something you don't expect. Um, it might be Volkswagen. 
because really? they've been bought up as a commodity. So their emissions are crap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> their diesel Ducati right. has just been. But Ducati, you know. Um, and I mean, then, they are an Italian race bike. They are. They offer them on the street. But, yeah, they've got race mm-hmm. parentage. Ducati, what really makes them unique right now is they've got desmodromic valves, which they're using one cam lobe to close the valve and a second cam lobe to open the valve. There's no valve springs, which is kind of you can get some pretty radical lift and duration on your valve timing using desmodromic. The downside is maintenance costs can be a little higher because now you've got valve shims on mm-hmm. both sides of the actuation. And valve spring technology has come so far that it's not a matter of being able to run aggressive cams as much anymore as it is this is what makes Ducati unique to Ducati is the desmodromic valve train assembly. Is the motorcycle industry... Um does it have the following that it has in the past? Is is it still as big as it once was? I don't think it is. And, of course, in the U.S., one of the worst things that happened was the custom motorcycles TV shows. They did horrible damage. They got hung up on the imagery. The, the Talking about American with, Choppers. American Choppers, mm-hmm. and, and to some degree even Jesse James, so he is a very skilled builder. American Choppers were just awful. They were doing just junk and, you know, the huge tiller bars. The nature of custom bike building in the past was how light can we make this thing because we can't hop up the engine, so how are we going to make it go faster by chopping weight off the motorcycle, hence the term. Mm-hmm. And things like the tall handlebars, you know, the ape hangers. Well, initially those were, um, well, I can't, I'm broke, I can't afford handlebars from my dealer, so they took a kitchen chair or a shopping cart. <laughs> they just used what they could? Right. So this it, was the original DIY. Yeah. And uh, the creativity and, uh, uh, oh, my fender got banged up, so I trimmed it and slid it forward, so now it's a really short bobbed tail <laughs> fender. And it was dropping weight to make horsepower per pound, and then it got out of hand. So now when I see stuff like American Chopper where, look, I built this custom bike from catalog parts, and it weighs in at 850 pounds. It's 300 pounds heavier than when I started. <laughs> Well, that's not a chopper, right? And it's not a Nothing custom. Nothing is chopped. It's just low, right? Right, and it's it's something where a nice thin piece of sheet metal would do the job. Instead, they put on a eight pound slab of solid stock aluminum, you know, and pay someone else outside the shop to carve it up for them, and they bolt it all together. Anyway, so the damage they did by getting a bunch of people hung up on the imagery of motorcycles was very harmful over the long haul. Thankfully, they've moved on to ruining the custom car market now with mm. the Gas Monkey Garage. So they're ruining the car, <laughs> the custom car world now. But a great example when they say, we're going to build a theme bike. A theme bike. Well, let's think about that. In the custom car world, if you rolled up in the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, would that be the coolest custom car? Look, it's a theme car. It's the Oscar Mayer. No, they'd laughing. It's a wiener. Come on, knock it off. Well, but you do a wiener motorcycle sometimes some for some reason that's cool. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a wiener. <laughs> what else? You, <laughs> uh, getting a little bit more political, perhaps. You <laughs> have a problem, I think, and I don't know if I disagree with you. You, I'm curious to know your uh, perspective on it, though. Um, you have a problem with the militarization of the police force in the U.S. Yeah. Police in the U.S. are civilians. So 
when I hear stuff like, support our Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, and police. Uh, what? No, the police are civilian. Now, if they're not civilian, if they are indeed military, then they are in violation of the United States Constitution. This has been decided on repeatedly, including a little section referred to as uh, posse comitatus, but there's a specific act where they actually discuss this in depth, and that is use of military force against US military citizens. The United States military cannot be deployed against its own citizens. Against its own citizens, and this has all been codified. So when our police start viewing themselves as a military force, that my arm shoots up and goes, well, who's your enemy? Hmm. And you've now declared that the U.S. citizenry are your enemies? There's a wonderful book wrote by Radley Balco called um, Rise of the Warrior Cop. Get it, read it. And it's no opinion at all. He simply documented how this occurred. And it started with dealing with the drug issue in the U.S. and how at times when crime was dropping but someone wanted to get elected so they'd start yapping about, I'm going to get tough on crime, ignoring the statistics that crime was actually on the downfall. But it gave him an ex- a way to get elected. Oh, he's going to get tough on crime. And this, elect- this was Reagan, yeah? It goes clear way Is it farther than that? Way back before that. So this problem started long before. And then, of course, if you really start tracking back the war on drugs, it was started off because who used marijuana back in the 50s and 60s? That was the minority groups. Mm. It wasn't the general population. So some of this is racially motivated how this started. It, is marijuana the, the drug that they really are going after? Based on or the legal system. And, you know, there's a great example to try to deny that there's any racial motivation behind our drug laws. For the longest time, if you got caught with massive quantities of powdered cocaine, it was a, a slap on the wrist. But, oh, you've got a smokable rock? Well, who's using drug A? Who's using drug B? Hmm. So, yeah, as much as it's uncomfortable to say that there may have been some racial motivation behind some of these laws... And then, of course, the, the uh, actual enforcement policy um, and, of course, the, the blue line that I must support my fellow officer no matter what sort of horrific behavior mm-hmm. they... Um, and if you don't, you are the bad guy. You're the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I was rear-ended by a car driver a few years ago, and this is really where it... On just, a motorcycle? I was on a motorcycle, got rear-ended by a car. And I got off the motorcycle, and I went, turned around, held my hands up, and the guy goes, he shrugs and looks back at his phone. He punched me out in the intersection about 20 feet, and I kept my feet under me and didn't tip over, though the back end of the bike obviously had some damage. And he just shrugs and looks back at his phone. He's busy with whatever's going on in his phone. And I put the side stand, go back, and I said, what are you doing? Throw some curses at him and call him all sorts of names in the book that his phone call is somehow more important than my life. An off-duty officer, and no, I'm not going to say his name because he's still on the force, and I just don't need it, but he drives through the intersection, didn't see why I'm shouting at this guy, starts screaming out his window, get on your motorcycle and get out of here. He's not on the job. He's not on the job. He then goes home, calls back to the office, and tells them to go down and charge me with disorderly conduct. So the officer who reported to the crash scene took the report, had other witnesses that watched this guy drive in the back of me, refused to take their statement, charges me with disorderly conduct. And I was standing there in my driveway, and I said, this is ridiculous. I was yelling at the guy because he hit me with his car. 
And he says, yeah, but, you know, they're just going to throw it out of court anyway. So he's admitting that he knows that this charge is BS to begin with. And I said, the only reason you're doing this is because your fellow officer told you, not because it's an actual right thing to do. No, they're going to throw it out of court anyway. It doesn't matter. But it cost me, of course, $500 to pay a lawyer to get it thrown out of court. And it did get thrown out of court. So he then fills out his report, and I get to read the report where he has done the, um, this piecemeal thing on my statement to completely change what I was saying. You know, he can just like, you took a paragraph and you used 30 words out of it to change the complete meaning of what I was saying. So at that point, it, I start, wow, um, this blue line is much more important than right and wrong. And you're willing to lie on your own police report to cover for your fellow officer on something this petty. What are you willing to do for something that really matters? Mm-hmm. If he shoots some guy, are you going to say, hey, he was going at the guy, feared for his life. I'm going home tonight. So we've, and I start paying more attention at the national level, at the local level, and seeing this again and again and again, the selective enforcement of local laws, um, situations and confrontations with people out in the, across the country that could have been de-escalated instead of they were escalated, instead of being a restraint, they emptied you know, you saw the video of the guy crawling on the floor yeah. in the hotel room, mm-hmm. and he reaches down to pull his pants up, yeah. and, and after they make him do Simon Says for a fight, and just again and again and again and again and again. But I'm the bad guy because I got an issue with what our lo- our police force have become in the U.S. Well, I I heard a, a good, I, I thought was a good explanation of the problem. Our the police now are no longer police. They are law enforcement. Yeah. That's a different position. It's a totally different viewpoint. Like if, if your job, you go, you go to work, you get in that car and you are law enforcement, you are looking for law breakers and you're going to fix them. You're going to tell them you're going to get them because they're breaking the law. Yeah. A police officer in theory, if we go back in time, policing was sa- was securing people, making sure they're safe, making sure the streets are safe. If someone did something bad, you n- didn't necessarily go, wow, you broke this law, check, 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 and now you're going to jail. Hey, stop it. You're, yeah. Someone's going to get hurt. Quit doing that. Someone, you, you pull up behind a car that's swerving around, you stop him. It's old Bob from down the road. He's been drinking. What are you doing? This is stupid. I'm going to follow you home and don't do this again. Yeah. That, you can't do that anymore because it's law enforcement. Oh, you're drunk. Bam. Well, to jail. I would love to see... If they were, if that was the goal, then let's do it in Watertown. Oh, but oh, I see. It's not. It's not across the board. Yeah, ride around with three-inch straight pipes on your pickup truck or your motorcycle, and that's fine. Go ahead and break that law. No one gives two hoots. Um, if you're in the wrong neighborhood and you've got a vehicle you're working on, uh, you're you will get um ticketed you will get enforcement of this derelict vehicle laws in Watertown but if you're uh, if it's parked behind a $300,000 house well we're not going to enforce that so selective enforcement is mm-hmm. is rather offensive too that yeah if your income level drops then yeah we're going to enforce those laws much more aggressively than on a higher income neighborhoods and of course the the if it, is it on the books okay if you're not going to enforce it get it off the books mm-hmm. 
Um, and this happened, we had uh, bicycle riding on the sidewalks. Well, technically it was illegal, but of course, well, do you really want your kids riding in the street? Let them ride in the sidewalk. So they finally did get around to fixing that in Watertown. Really? You can legally ride a bicycle on a sidewalk in Watertown now. So that's good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just, which is it going to be? Are you going to enforce all the laws or not? Well, if you enforce all <laughs> the laws, you have to know them. Yeah. And you're telling me that every one of those officers know them? No. <laughs> do any of them? Do, no. does, does the chief know them? You know, I would love to consult with them about motorcycle laws because there's a bunch they don't know as far as that goes. And sometimes, yeah, I'm as guilty as the rest. There's some of the, the laws that, uh, like, you have to have a left mirror but not a right. Um, so I always run both mirrors, of course, because I like to be able to right. see. But there's been some people, oh, the mount broke for the left, so I'm just running a right. Well, okay, so that's illegal. You have to run a left mandatory. The right is optional. You're running the right but not the left. Okay, now you're in violation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to what end? It's a silly right. thing. Right. Yeah. But uh, so it's a selective enforcement. Either knows the laws and enforce them. And if you are just going to do your darndest to en- enforce all the laws, well, then do your darndest to enforce all the laws. Mm-hmm. You know, one or the other, but this flipping back and forth as to which ones we're going to enforce and which ones we're going to ignore. No, that's unacceptable. Yeah, look at that. Amazon, $8.32. Wonderful. Eight bucks. Secondhand copy of Rise of the Warrior Cop by Radley Belko. The Militarization of America's Police Force, I believe it's from 2014. Cannot recommend it enough. New York Times bestseller. Please buy it. Excellent. I think that would be... <clears throat> yeah, that's Now, good. do you have a click-through? Do you have an Amazon click-through for listeners? No, not yet. Okay. We don't have... Uh... And again, we're we're still building the back end of this whole network because we don't even have our and a lot of it is, um, you know, the goal of the building or the room, the studio now is to create an environment for the Millbank community uh, and surrounding. Technically, I don't really care. Um, can try their hand at broadcast, sure, either at the talking level or at the production level or both, and that 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 I think I've never seen anywhere in the country where a community has something that's available to them like that. For for no, I mean, uh, there's no barrier to entry other than you have to try. Yeah. And you, I, I don't want people swearing outrageously. I don't want people being jerks. Huh. That That's my rule. This is such a wonderful facility. Anyone who gets a chance to look this over, this is amazing. It's It's been a, a, a work in progress for the last year. Uh, and it's been fun. We've had some awesome people donate different pieces to this. Um, there's a very strange picture of me on the wall, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a piece of art from an uh, artist that was yeah. here and then moved to back to Florida. Do you ever get confused with the cat wrangler? <laughs> no. You know Should the, I? Do you know the guy? Oh, you know what? Someone else asked me that. <laughs> no, so someone has. I, yeah. I've never seen the show, but someone did mention that once. Yeah. And I thought, it's, huh. I tell you of all the people you could get intermixed with, not a bad guy. Really? <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad, not a bad problem. Uh, not a bad guy. Um, well, one thing we're doing, because you know, over the, the last 63 episodes of this show, um, we have kind of been, it's been a um, friend and I basically having a conversation over current events. Sure. And th- that's going to keep going. I mean, uh, but he decided he would leave and move to St. Cloud. So he now goes away and we're working on the Skype connection. So that's going to continue. We'll still do, do those. Um, but I really wanted to expand out even more into these kinds of things find different people that i find interesting and throw stuff at them and i if you're game i'd love to have you back to be a a voice on our 
Oh, sure. Uh, in these. Sure. Because you know, one thing I like to do is go over the uh, just news of the day and talk about it. If there's something to talk about, something to laugh about. Yeah. Um, some of it's outrageous what's going on. Some of it's hilarious. Like the other day I saw a headline that uh, China is cracking down on funeral strippers. I saw that. I mean, yeah, I didn't get to read the article. I saw that. I saw that. I was like, <laughs> like really? Wow. The, 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 first of all, yep. this is a problem. <laughs> you know, teach their own. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Uh, the you know, in the Mormon community, they're really famous for their funeral potatoes, and they have uh, a potato dish refer- that is pr- traditionally so uh, served at funerals. And it's this wonderful potato dish referred to as funeral potatoes. And uh, I'm sure it's real similar to what China has in the funeral strippers, right? It's pr- probably close, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. the same thing, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I think the best part about this is it didn't, I mean, the headline is, and it's from the New York Post, the headline is funeral strippers. Um, <laughs> but they, they have launched its latest crackdown on funeral strippers. Um, the Ministry of Culture announced late last month that it will be targeting a slew of rural provinces for their obscene and vulgar performances at weddings. Oh, weddings. Funerals. Too. Oh, funerals. And temple fairs. So, I mean, it's kind of broad, but, you know, the, the, <laughs> the fact that you would have a stripper at a funeral, what, what are we doing? Cultures, you know. <laughs> it's, it's true, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's not yeah. normally a thing you see at the Lutherans, but... Not you, so much. Yeah, yeah. Episcopalians, you never know what they're going to slide by. Right. Uh, I, I'm curious your thoughts on the current conversation after the Parkland shooting. Yeah, and there's a that's another one where I, I I have the people on the left convinced I'm a radical right wing wackadoodle, and I have the people on the right convinced I'm a a, a liberal, which is perfect for me. Um, who am I going to offend today? Because as with pretty much everything in life, the extreme left and the extreme right are both nuts. Mm-hmm. So. Um, We've got a situation here that all stems back to the Second Amendment. Now, and D- does it? You well, think? unfortunately, it does. So the fix would be if you do want to. And by the way, I'll throw this all out there just from a breakdown standpoint. It doesn't necessarily mean I agree with it. So you want to put in gun laws that have been effective in stopping mass shootings everywhere else in the world. What's the difference between the U.S. and the rest of the world? The Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. The idea that the government knows who's armed and who isn't. So all these laws come into place. Um, it was an easy one. Here's what they said. We don't want people who are mentally ill owning firearms. Yeah, what are the rules, though, for that? Bingo. Let's define mentally ill mm-hmm. before we can, because literally, without exaggeration, without hyperbole, every single human being qualifies as mentally ill by some level. some level. Right. So if you don't define that first... You're literally just saying, okay, fine, we're going to ban all firearms in the U.S., mm-hmm. which if that's what you want to do, well, let's do it then. Right. But don't yeah. pretend that we're just keeping away from mentally ill people without first defining what it means to be mentally ill. And, of course, then the next thing is, well, then no one's going to get help if they're having mental health issues, if they're worried, say if they're an avid hunter mm-hmm. or if they pre- like target shooting, then instantly um, I'm not going to go get help because no. that's going to get me tagged as mentally ill and I'm going to have to give up all my firearms. So then I ask simple questions like, well, we need to ban the AR-15. Great. Okay, so if you just say ban the AR-15, what stops them from calling it 
Now it's the AR-16. Hey, mm-hmm. okay, so you need to break down what components about this AR-15. Is it the pistol grip? Is it the external magazine? Is it the or a ex- barrel shroud? A barrel shroud. Um, uh, so there was a law proposed by Nancy Pelosi years ago that was so vague that literally my single action revolver 22 fell under, that. Fell under the, because their definition of pistol grip was mm-hmm. so vague that now my single action 22 revolver is referred to as an assault weapon. Right. <laughs> you know? Which, okay, if we're going to go down there, it technically is. Yeah. I mean, it, if you can you assault with it? You, slowly. Slow. Well, but you single can. action. You yeah, don't just pull right, the trigger. You, right, you have to cock, cock it every time. Yeah. Every time. But if you're a good shot. So yeah, the definitions and by simply asking for a hard definition mm-hmm. of what makes something an assault weapon, they don't want to respond. They want to attack you for you just want right. dead Think children. Of the in children. The stri- right. Like, well, that's not actually what I'm saying. Right. But yeah, can we define these terms before we um and then um of course, there's so much misinformation uh, about the difference between a semi-automatic and a fully automatic, right. and, and people don't honestly know. Um, well, most talking heads have no idea what they're talking about. And then, well, we need to limit that to three shots. Oops, well, there went my lever-action mm-hmm. twenty-two yeah. Henry rifle, because it holds like 10, but it's in a tubular magazine rather than an external right. magazine. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm all for... Um, whatever the mass, the group, the majority want to do, but can we stop and define the terms before we can have a discussion about it? You have to come from the same position, right. And I I think that is the biggest difference between the conservative mentality and the liberal mentality, is the conservatives, well, the liberals tend to come at everything from government is best and can, can handle your money and make the decisions better. Conservatives tend to come from, well, the people can make better decisions than government. I don't know how you can, for real, marry those two together and get anything done. I've had that discussion. I've got a lot of friends that live in large metro areas. Well, think about this living in a large metro area. Um, The government takes care of your trash. The government takes care of your parking. The government takes care of your, in some cases, the Wi-Fi is, is government. So they're used to interaction with the government, and it works, and it's wonderful. Well, now, once you leave the metro... You got to move your own snow. You might have to find your own garbage hauler. You might have to. So it becomes very independent. So we saw this at the 2016 election. If you looked at the map, it was simply, are you in a metro or are you not? Totally. Yeah. And it it wasn't red state, blue state. Right. That was County city even. Yeah. Yeah. And so we had Sioux Falls and there was. Some of Pier, I think. A little bit of Pier. Yeah. Yeah. So people that daily interact with government and think it's great and people who don't daily interact with government. And that's all it came down to, apparently. It was a majority of it. So the, the philosophical angle right from the get-go is you've got two groups. One that thinks, well, what's the problem with government? Works mm-hmm. great. Yeah. And another group went, I barely see them. And when I do, they make a mess. Look how long right. it took me to get my driver's license <laughs> renewed. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and I guess I had a, a guy who wants to be on the ballot for the uh, governor primary on the Republican side stopped in a few weeks ago to get my signature on. And I'll, you know what? I will sign for anyone to get on the ballot. Absolutely. You, you want to be a part of the game, then people can vote. I'll yeah. put you on the ballot. That's fine. And so I was talking to him a little bit. And I he, his goal, I can't remember the guy's name. I have his card somewhere. His goal is he wants to actually bring the other side at, to the table. Wonderful. And like to the point where he said if he could, he would run with the guy, the Democrat, 
and try to get elected as, as a as a team as, as right. Which the concept is wonderful. I don't think it's possible. No, because and, and I said that he's oh absolutely it's possible. It's not. Well, I appreciate his uh, optimism. Well, sure, that's a, yeah, that's a guy right I loved right. And I I haven't heard anyone say that out loud before. But I don't believe that he thinks that there's any issue with that. You just have to invite them. No, you don't because. Both sides won't give on certain things. And to be honest, because government has gotten so deep in things they shouldn't belong in, the people that elect them to those things that government shouldn't be involved in, they don't want them to change. Like The hard left liberals, they don't want Nancy Pelosi to give on any of their programs. The hard right people, the people that are elected, they don't want their officials to give on any of those, the, like the moral questions. Because it's a moral question. Yeah. You can't have a compromise which then removes some of that moral side of it. Like, there are certain things that I don't want a politician to give on. And if they do, I think they're corrupt. That makes perfect sense. But they shouldn't be in there to begin with. And th- <laughs> that, I think, is my issue. It's like welfare. Federal government should not be in welfare. Leave that to states and local. That's different. But the federal government shouldn't be involved in education. shouldn't be involved in a lot of things, in my mind. Isn't it interesting when you watch the the left and the right and on certain things they'll they'll flip flop. They'll be I don't want the government involved in my personal life, but I want to tell you who you can get married to. <laughs> exactly. Well wait, which is it? <laughs> you know, and, and they'll move on. Um you know, I want the government in charge of this. Whoa, what are you doing telling me <laughs> mm-hmm. well, which is it? Right. So when I, I see the inconsistency of it, you know. Um, what was that line? I, I want a world where my lesbian friends can get married and guard their marijuana operation with firearms. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I, I think, well, the you know, movie, just touching on the, the same-sex marriage concept a little bit, I believe the only value in a government being involved in a marriage has to has to be because that marriage can duplicate itself. Oh, well, but but like by, by by in the typical circumstance, there's always outliers. There's always going to be right. So government, in my mind, that's the only value for government being involved. Period, is that to, well, you got to have tax base. So to perpetuate the tax base, the only way you can make more taxpayers is if you have two a boy and a girl. Yeah. So government says, okay. We will we will incentivize that relationship because it will make more people to pay more taxes. Mm. So then that's okay. For government to then say, you know what, anyone, yeah, that's fine. There's no value to society and no value, there's no way to make more taxpayers with, with, with a same-sex marriage. For right. government to say, go for it. If, if people want to do it on their own, let them. Um, one of the things we uh, we deal with, of course, is the number of children born who don't have functioning parents and the same-sex couples across the U.S. are famous for adopting and they're adopting. There's no other option for them. No, true. But so there is a perpetuation in that do you want the state raising these children without parents or do you want this dedicated couple of the same gender? Um, For a government then to view not just all citizens but male citizens, female citizens. So from a structure standpoint, um, the government just to view everyone within the borders as citizens, period, regardless of gender. 
and if two citizens get married without ever looking at gender, um, that from a just a pure structural standpoint, I can see where they're coming from there. From a reproduction standpoint, well, obviously two same sex, but neither can. Oh, here's a sixty year old couple going to get married. Yeah, sorry. You know, well, well, right, and that's it, it, a surprising but, but I, number of people getting married well are. beyond totally. their reproductive years. Right? Ooh, it's your third marriage. You're in your forties. You've already had kids. Yeah, but, but but again, then it goes back to what, how much real control do we want in government? Right. And it makes more sense to say boy and girl can reproduce. Now, here's something you might have better historical context than me, and that is, um, if we go back a thousand years, this was a religious ceremony called. Totally. And the churches then approached the government and said, we want you to legally recognize our religious ceremony of marriage. So they invited government into their religious ceremony. So this is what happens when you invite government into your church. So now you say, well, government, what are you doing regulating our church things? Like you invited government into your church. I think it's similar to (laughs) a community inviting the, the, we, we need a sheriff to make sure that we're safe. <laughs> so then at some point you say, okay, in order for this to happen, I give up this much freedom. Yeah. So I guess it's kind of a similar concept. Yeah. Um, my, I, I, for decades, centuries, the word marriage meant one thing, man and woman together. Yep. So now it doesn't. Right. That, that definition got changed. Yeah. Call, a, call it something else, but for government and then this, this the Supreme Court ratifying it, to say, okay, now this word, now by definition is different. That I think is what I have a bigger problem with. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't know giving... how, but I don't know how you can, like, I, I guess I don't know the point of, of redefining a definition of, a, of one word. Because no one's discriminated against ever under the old definition of marriage. Every man has the same right to marry a woman. Right. Every woman has the same right to marry if a man. If I die without a without a will, if I'm in the hospital, um, my spouse mm-hmm. is by default, even without a will, she becomes right. Right. So, but, but you can do that without the marriage. I think. If you're if you want to plan, how many couples do you know married uh, traditional um, male female marriages? Do you know they don't have a will. A lot. So it becomes a default setting that sure. your married spouse, yeah. a hospital visitation. And but this isn't, was, that, isn't that the civil union debate? Didn't that do that for them? Yeah, if, okay, but then if you say civil union, fine, but all, because I, I get real leery when the government said this gender has different rights than that gender. The, this, the, to treat us, these are female citizens, these are male citizens. So the government as an entity just to view all living beings within the borders, these are citizens, and any two then can then merit, marry. Um, and some of it comes down to, I've seen, my, I have a brother, for example, I think he's on his third marriage. What's Rush Limbaugh on? Five? What's Donald Trump on? Four? Meanwhile, one couple I'm thinking of in particular, they're of the same gender. They've been together for 30 years? So who's setting the standard here for what a, a good marriage is? Well, the, the whole concept of no-fault divorce has caused that to really be a problem. Yeah. Because marriage doesn't matter. And, and you know, at some point, I would go to the, to the extreme of get government out of marriage, period. 
Drop yeah, it. Just, there's at this point, there's no value in government involved in marriage, and I kind of think that's the case now because now marriage means nothing. There's no societal value. There's no there's no reason for government to be involved in marriage anymore. So get out altogether. Fine. And then people can do what they want. I don't agree with what some people do. I don't agree with the drunk that goes to the bar every night. I think that's wrong. Just yeah. like I think other things are wrong. And I'm not going to tell my children that that's the right thing to do. And that, I think, is the other piece that I don't love. And a lot of that goes comes back to this idea that I can decide if I'm a boy or a girl. I can choose in my head. Right. Um, if you want to play that game, okay. But I'm not going to teach my children... And you aren't going to force me to teach my children that that's a normal thing to do in society. Well, that goes right back to discussion whether or not you're you're choosing to be a boy and the girl or it is how you are wired and you're just openly admitting it. Um, there's a gentleman in Watertown who never, I don't think, ever admitted to himself and he's got on with his life, and you could ask him point blank. He'd say, I'm heterosexual. And he's lived a very depressing, kind of a sad life that I can't help but go, if you could admit to yourself that you were a gay man, and you could find a, another gay man that you could interact with and have a loving life with, why would that be so awful? But this individual, since he is very, he's a very devoted churchgoer, which would not accept the concept of his homosexuality. I think pretty sure he's still in denial to himself about who he is at his core. And he has not been a happy individual, but I can't help but think if this man didn't have all this pressure to never admit that he's a gay man, he'd be so much happier. So if you come back to the idea that someone's choosing to be gay and they're choosing to be transgendered, that's when the discussion's going to break down because we don't agree on what it is at its core. You're not choosing. You're admitting. I have a very dear friend. She lives, uh, yeah. she lives uh, in Fargo now because Watertown is so hostile towards her. This is a wonderful lady, and she works hard, and she pays his ta- her, pa- her taxes, and she does everything that a good citizen is supposed to do. She's doing no one any harm other than she's transgendered. So what is that? My business other than is she nice? Is she pleasant to be around? Does she pay her taxes? Is she breaking any laws? No? All right. Well, she was very sad. She was very bothered by the gender that was assigned to her at birth. And when she became an adult, she says, I am not him. I am she. And she has then moved on to become she. And she's a wonderful person. So is is that really something that, I mean, if you look at across the board at nature and at science, I think, there are things that define genders pretty clearly. Well. And, and, and so that's where I Komodo struggle. Dragons. Well, that's where I struggle, though. Is the standard? It, it it it's the abnormality for something in nature to not be very clearly defined. Yeah, you know, elephants are a great example that way. They're a higher function mammal, right? You know, an awful lot of elephants go their entire lives without actually having 
heterosexual sex. Elephants. Maybe that's why they don't have as many elephants as you'd like. Because well, it also takes three years to, to make one. dragons, if there are uh, no males, the females will lay eggs that are perfectly functioning, but they'll all be male. So they come female Komodo dragons don't need a male. If their populations get low and there's, oh, there's no males, they'll just produce fertile eggs, but all the eggs will be male. So they'll reconstruct their reproductive group. So yeah, nature isn't as... But there was a time when... Oh, your child's born with Down syndrome, they're going to die at 12. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a whole lot of things we're, we're looking at as our society has evolved that might be in, I won't say defiance of nature, but certainly different than nature used to be accepted as. Um, manned flight, something as simple as that. Well, you had to build a machine to do it. You know, you had to understand how air flows over a surface isn't natural isn't natural to run faster than your legs can move you there's a whole lot of stuff as time has evolved that that wasn't true then but it is true now but i I think that's a little bit different because we're not changing short of actual medical intervention chemical intervention we're not changing the the chemical makeup of the human body. Oh, the DNA structure itself. And and I, I think that is where I, I I struggle with and you know, just a a decade ago or less, if you had the a, a disorder that they claimed that you had gender dysphoria, body dysmorphia is another one. I mean you you don't think this hand belongs to you. <laughs> and so you you are you do everything you can to remove it. Yeah. Um, uh, trans ableism, I think, is something where people who are very perfectly physically Physic- able yeah. don't think they should be, and so then they now we look at that and we treat that. And if we didn't, if we went along and went with them and said, you know, you're right, yeah, here you go, the bulimic that thinks they're too big and they're this big around, but they are convinced they're too fat, and so they have to go puke every time they eat. They have to go throw up. If we go alongside them and say, you know, you're right. You, you're absolutely right. And here's the bucket. It's time. We just had dinner. Let's go. We'll, we'll hold. We'll wipe your face. It's fine. It's good. Wouldn't we be condemned for enabling that behavior if, if we did that? And yet this one, this other thing that was very much considered a, an equal disorder now is celebrated and we are we are being c- compelled at some level to to celebrate it yeah well uh, I, I guess i'm confused how it's different um well it's not new you can track back a thousand years even the native american cultures this was a- accepted but we didn't have the medical ability to move it one step further so now we have this medical ability to move it one step further. And I I should stop at this point, too, because this doesn't apply to me. So I'm speaking about something that isn't me. I'm I'm speaking about my interaction with an individual who it does apply to. And I can only speak so far. And she would be, of course, much better equipped to address all this than I. So my apologies at that point because I can't fully answer these questions. I can only discuss how I've interacted with it and these wonderful people 
who live perfectly fine lives and for me to then step forward and say, yeah, um, no, that's not allowed. Okay, so is this person eating sheetrock? Are they doing something unhealthy? Are they doing something that, that uh, is going to shorten their lifespan? Well, that's bothersome. Is this someone who is um, going to make their own life more difficult and less able to pay into the, from a functional state, pay into the tax base, like removing an arm? No? All right. <laughs> not, not bothering me. So, yeah, she's, uh, she's loving couples of the same gender, um, an individual who just never felt like uh, a male through the whole life, and once they become an adult, they went, nope, still there. So now she um, lives in Fargo, and she visits Watertown, and I always enjoy my time with her. And, yeah. But I, I can't answer it as deep as I wish I could for you because I've only burned so many calories on a subject because it, it's not me. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with who I am. Right. My, the, the I guess that the core of why I struggle with, with now changing that is then it, it moves what society called would hold up as a, as a truth, I guess. And so, I'm not opposed to to adjusting what the way society moves, but at what point don't we need just like in the gun debate? Don't we need a, a a solid set of foundational facts that we go from? Because if we don't have that, how can society succeed if everything is just so murky? It's like it's like building on a gravel pile. At some point, it falls over. I think if you don't have a solid foundation of some standard. Yeah, I get. I get, I bristle when the solid foundation is someone's religion. And that's the, the base comes from because instantly it turns into, well, that's your religion. That's not my religion. And I, I start putting up mental walls when the basis refers to, well, this is what it says in the Bible. Well, why do I care what it says in the Bible? Well, but doesn't it go back to the, the law enforcement situation too? Where, where like, if we don't have a found, if, if we're not, if we're not enforcing all of them, right? Then the whole thing falls apart. We can't build a house if we only have supported this corner. So, isn't that a similar analogy? I see where where that comes in. Yeah, and it's certainly uh, a good point of discussion as to you know what defines what. Uh, what is that with the medical? What is the book that the medical community references? The DSM. There you go. Diagnostics. So isn't that manual? Isn't that the? Maybe, well, sure. It should be. Yeah, I I would think so. Um, but up, I mean, up until now, and that changes too. That's not sure. You know, yeah, just like the the legal standard. So as a but, society and our our culture changes, then so mm-hmm. does the. Well, and and I I think that we have to very much consider and take into account what yeah you know what what you know, they say. But then you also kind of have to look at. The political side of it, because unfortunately, politics makes its way really sneakily yep. into science and into medicine law, and uh, into law drugs and law enforcement. Yeah, so it, it it's an unfortunate not. Like I, I I would probably agree. You really can't have a conversation about it because right. there is no. Like, how, how where do you start? Well, I, and and I always default to this: Is it hurting me? Yeah. 
all right, move on to something else. And and I'm not trying to change the subject there, right. but um, it's kind of like people get, and they locally, they get very upset when the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses knock on their door or the Mormons knock on the door. And I'm like, no, nah, no thanks. And if they don't take a no thanks, I simply close the door. <laughs> yeah. You know? Okay, well, you good luck. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? But that's the extent. Yeah. You know, oh, the Mormons, they're just so weird. Hmm. I remember one strapping on a suicide vest. Moving on. Not bothering me. Famous for their potatoes. <laughs> the comedy of Jenna Kim Jones. She's a fantastic comedian. <laughs> you know? Um, oh, you like Imagine Dragons? Mormons. So, you know, I'm I'm not bothered if I disagree with some of their theology because well, they seem to be good people. They aren't noted for killings and murders or anything. So, eh, let them, you know. Um, so d- Seventh-day d- Adventists. It, yeah. Oh, they're so strange. Most of them are, uh, are vegetarians. Hmm? That means they're they... healthier. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's <laughs> right. healthy and, okay, well, yeah. maybe that'll help keep down... Beef prices for me. Yeah, you know, <laughs> fewer people right. after it. Right. So yeah, yeah, kind of it comes down to the default setting is, does it harm me? No. Okay, good to go. <laughs> does it matter? And then we can move on after this. Does it matter though if? And that, I think this gets into the education world. Does it matter when some of this change that maybe doesn't directly affect us, but it affects what our children are supposed to believe? Does that, does any of that come into play? I think in, yeah, it, it does. And the, uh, um, of course, with the, the internet and, and Facebook and oh, Twitter man. have done such damage in this stuff. And such a wonderful example is if you go by the internet, Common Core is the worst thing on the planet. Well, then I thought, well, if this is this weird, how did this get through? And then I started looking into it and go, oh, actually, this isn't that weird but it's being presented on the internet in a very odd way if i actually talk to the teachers who are implementing it who understand it as opposed to the teachers who are trying to implement it and they themselves don't understand it which creates a real mess Mm -hmm. um it's two different things yeah so yeah um how it affects how our children are being taught is is interesting but how social media has affected how data is exchanged between people and people are just adamant that they know about something and then you give them a little bit more detail that they can confirm on their own too and then maybe it starts that the dial starts to turn uh the famous one that i still deal with every now and then was stella who was in the passenger seat of a car and she got hot coffee dumped on her and she was burned and everyone thinks they know that until they look into it further (laughs) and go oh i i guess i am on stella's side right oh what do you know Mm -hmm. because we've a story got repeated enough often enough that it got believed just because that's everybody knows that. Well, guess what? <laughs> that mm-hmm. doesn't actually the story. Right. Yeah. And th- that is a fascinating story, too. I think there's a lot of people who would love to homeschool their kids. I was one of them. I don't have the ability to do it. I don't have the talent to do it. I don't have the skill set to be a teacher um, at that type of teaching. So there is that admission. As much as I would love to homeschool my kids, I'm not capable of doing it. I'm not the person. My my wife also. I'm I'm not that kind of a teacher. Um yeah, they'll learn how to form sheet metal on an English wheel. Well, but, but you but you are not the type of parent <laughs> that says, math. "Okay, school, 
it's all you. No. You no. are an actual parent. Yeah. And and I think that's the difference. Yeah. Maybe that that's it too. So one of the things with dealing with Special Olympics is you draw a line in the sand. You say, here's a 74. I think that's the number. 74 IQ. If you're above 74, you don't have a disability. If you're below 74, you do. Really? Just, it's wherever just the a straight number, number? There's a number. The number of people that are five points above that line. <laughs> and then the other side, your Special Olympics athletes, they're two points below that line. Hmm. Not a lot of difference. <laughs> other so, than stigma. Yeah. Some of it, although there's not a lot of stigma involved with Special Olympics anymore since we started adding unified sports, too. So a unified sports, that's where, like, basketball oh, so was combined. Half the team would have a disability and half mm-hmm. the team not. So finally, we have athletic opportunities for both Democrats and Republicans. Weird. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Excellent. But, you know, someone that's got a, an, an IQ of, of 80 and they hold down a job just fine and you have a nice interaction with them just fine, are they capable of being then uh, homeschooling their kids? Probably not. Mm-hmm. So there is a need for an education system above and beyond everything just being homeschooled or our culture or society is going to spiral down hard in a hurry. But, okay, I think you're you're right. But some of that is due to the fact that our socioeconomic system in the U.S. specifically kind of mandates that both people should be out working. And yeah. the government really is the best person to give you the education you need because you need to go to four-year college afterward, and then you need to work at a, you know, you need to you need to have that paper to work at the job. And I mean, Western education began because we needed factory workers. We needed yeah. to pump out robots. We need someone bright enough to push the button yeah. and not, but not bright to enough think. to question <laughs> exactly. why they're yeah. pushing the button. And you, I I love watching your <laughs> your uh, your Facebook post because. I mean, you're a machinist, and you can't be gray in machining. It no. is, you have to be dead on. You, there's no flexibility. There is. Well, but but is that not in the planning? Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of neat because, you know, I'm going to uh, speak in a language. It's going to get weird in a hurry. <laughs> All right. So point one, point zero one, point zero zero one, point zero 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 one. When point zero zero one is one thousandths of an inch, point zero 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 one is one ten thousandths of an inch. We speak in three digits, meaning point one is referred to as one hundred thousandths. It's not referred to as one tenth of an inch. It's referred to as one hundred thousandths of an inch. We speak in wow. th- we speak in three digits. So point zero 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 one is referred to as one tenth even though it's actually one ten thousandths. So instantly you break down in the language of machinists, which is three digits. We speak in three digits. We don't speak in two. We don't speak in one. Where actual math, they're going to speak in, so point one mm-hmm. referred to as one-tenth. A machinist referred to that as a hundred thousandths. But th- th- that's just a... Um, a Nomenclature. Yeah, that, that's just part of the job. That's right. how you do it. So when someone says, I want something a half inch... How did they write that half inch? Did they write it 0.5? Did they write it 1 slash 2? Because that instantly tells me the tolerance and the range. If it's 1 over 2, I'm going to make that plus or minus 0.063, which is a fraction. (laughs) Uh, If they tell me it's uh, 
uh, 0.5, that's probably going to get you plus or minus 30 thousandths of an inch. If they tell me it's 0 0.50, that's plus or minus 10 thousandths. So there's sort of some range with industry standards. Where is that tolerance noticed? You um, like like at the 30 thousandths of an inch. Well, 30,000 is actually a pretty good really? distance, yeah. <laughs> um, paper, <laughs> you would say. <laughs> paper is probably, a sheet of paper, I think that's about six or eight thousandths thick. You know, and when you're trying to make two things fit together. You cannot put an actual .5000 thing into a .500 hole. Because they would hit. Right. You have to make one. They bind. Slightly, now you could heat yeah. one up and and chill one down For and minute, slide them right? together. <laughs> and then they'd fit real good. <laughs> and then material differences come into play. If you're putting dissimilar materials together, you get different reactions and different expansion rates as far as that goes. But to get back to your point, there is a range, and it's it's not as solid uh, a cast surface as plus or minus an eighth of an inch, 0.125, 125 thousandths for cast surfaces. So when someone says, yeah, I want that a half inch thick, my, I go, well, what do you mean by a half inch? What do you mean? Do you mean 0. 0.5000 and I need to hold it plus or minus one, tel <laughs> you know, 0. 0.500 that's going to give me mm, plus or minus five thousandths? Do you want plus or minus one thousandths? What kind of range do you want there? So there's a range. There isn't a, a hard and fast Yeah, but, but that's in the communication, right? Yeah. It's not in the actual implicate or the, the putting it on Cause the the machine, correct? Every, everything's got to fit to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Very few things are completely standalone. So if... Well, standalone wouldn't matter as much. Right. <laughs> if it's got to interface with something else, right. well, then I need to know about clearance that these two surfaces aren't actually going to bind into each other. Wow. So... How, how many steps forward do you typically have to think in, in, in what you do day to day? What will happen is I'll have a bin of material cut to a length longer than what I need, and I'm handed a blueprint. And then I first have to design a process. How am I going to grab onto this, and which tools, and in what order? So this port here, I'm going to do that with a drill, and then a port tool, and then a tap? Or am I going to put it on a lathe and actually just do a drill, and then follow that up with a boring bar to create all of those um, dimensions within the port? And then follow that up with a tap. Or in the case of a lathe, you might actually be able to single point it with a threading bar. So you have to first design the process. Wow. And then you can only, with your clamping and fixturing, you can only grab onto it from so many directions at once. So then you try to plan ahead. Okay, if I do this dimension first, then I can clamp on that machine surface to do my second side more concentric to the first side. And then tolerancing there comes into play. All right, so my first side to my second side needs to be um, true position, perpendicular, and concentric to within what tolerance. So that'll determine how I fixture it to the second. So if it's wide open and loose, well, I'll just set the thing down on a couple of pins and put a clamp across it and call that good. If it needs to be within three thousandths, now I'm going to want to build a fixture that actually fits against. And if it even needs to be tighter than that, I might probe off it on second top so that I'm dial right back into it within three ten thousandths of an inch. So there is a lot of art involved in machining yeah. and, and in, in the prep piece. Because if you have to think through how you're going to make it, that, that takes a creative mind. You're visualizing a two-dimensional print in three mm -hmm. dimensions, being yeah. able to visualize that and see it in the air. 
That's and fascinating. Then mechanical stuff. Let it talk to you. You know, what's it telling you as you're machining it? Um, your feed rates, your speed rates. Here's what theoretically is supposed to work. If it's chattering, um, in theory, you can increase your feed to load the tool harder. Okay, increase the feed slightly. Did that work? Slow down the RPM. That should also load the tool harder. Did it work? So if it didn't work, well, the school system will tell you increase feed, decrease speed to stop chatter. If that doesn't work, they've got nothing else to go. Well, 25 years experience says do the opposite. <laughs> Shouldn't work. Guess how often it, it does. Works. <laughs> <laughs> it's not supposed to work. Sometimes it does. So how many young uh, machinists do you run into that, well, two, two things. One of them, how many run, that you run into have the ability to kind of think that way? And then how many are straight up, this is what I was taught, and I, don't, I, I can't think anything else? Most of them anymore coming out of our, our tech school, they know what they're taught. They cannot figure out the most basic angle without going to the CAD system, really? computer animated design, computer assisted design. I'm not sure which it is, animated or it's assisted. It's an A. It's an A, <laughs> right. And they can't do even the most basic stuff. And they're using the CAD system to design their tool paths rather than using their brains to figure out those tool paths. Okay. And it's frustrating because our, our wonderful technical school is sending people out that have, they've got a degree, mm. <laughs> but they're not actually machinists. When you started, um, people coming out of school, were they different? A little bit, but that part, I think, has actually gotten worse. Really? Yeah. They used to, you know, 20 years ago, they would at least know the basic math. Now they don't even know the math. They can't tell you a hypotenuse from a sine from a cosine. They can't figure an angle without going to the CAD. And that's the system says, use CAD, mm -hmm. use CAD, use CAD. Well, many times you can figure it out with yourself in a TI-35 calculator faster Way than faster, you can yeah. turn on and get the computer mm -hmm. to boot up for you. And there's guys out there, now the control panels all have a switch that actually switches it out so the operator can't modify the software. And that's a little unfortunate because there was, that's, that's telling me is that our world is being overrun by people who are just pushing the button, mm -hmm. push the green button, stick yeah. another part in. They don't know what's happening, why it's happening. It's push the green button, feed another part in. They're not really machinists, they're machine operators. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's more and more machine operators and there's more and more people that are 100% dependent on the software and it's great software. It's neat software. Um, and then of course, additive manufacturing has brought a whole new aspect also known as 3d printing. Mm -hmm. So instead of carving away a massive amount of material, leaving behind a lug that you want, you go in there and it. put the lug where you want, which kind of a glorified wire feed welder mm -hmm. and, Oh, we just leave all this surface bare and I, come in with the additive manufacturing feed and put that right where I want it and then machine it and thread it and go on from there and put everything. So that's really changing things right now. There you still have machining involved because of oh, tolerances, sure. right? Oh, most certainly. Um, additive manufacturing, 3D printing, isn't, it, of course, the people that don't understand what we're actually doing. They're the ones screaming the loudest about, you're going to be unemployed. The machines are going to take all your jobs. And in fact... Machinists have never been more in demand right now than ever before because these new technologies are making things much more productive for us so that the 
product per man hour now is getting better and better and better, and it's no longer nearly as... There's a part we make right now. Uh, it's for John Deere. And even on my CNC 5-axis horizontal mill, I think I've got 45 tools in there. Now, when that was made by John Deere themselves back in 1972, um, they would have... 50 guys with 50 fixtures running 50 drill presses or probably 75 drill presses, possibly 100 to make that one part. And it'd just be a guy moving the part along, pulling Doing the right one arm. piece of it. Right. Now, when we lose a bid and we lose a part like that to China, they've got a, load, a line of 100 drill presses mm-hmm. with 100. We're, we're, with modern technology, where our productivity per man hour is so vastly ahead of everywhere else in the world. So the machinists, the true machinists now, as opposed to the machine operators, becoming more and more and more valuable. You think that's partly because there just aren't many coming out? There, there aren't many new machinists? Probably some, and you can go back and how long have we had everyone telling the uh, up-and-coming, you, you know, you better go get a degree, or what are you going to do, be a machinist? And they look down there, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a plumber? Right. You think yeah. plumbers have to worry about being replaced by a robot? Right. No, yeah. no. There's infinite variables. So, as again, with being a machinist, if you're a true machinist, you're interacting with literally infinite variables, and there's just no way that automation can replace mm. infinite variables. Right. So, yeah, those hands-on skill stuff. And then the ability to look at stuff. Think, yeah. Let the machine talk to you. Okay, so this is spinning and creating a gyroscopic effect. If I ask it to change direction, what's it gonna do? And you can just look at stuff and like building the sidecars and building the motorcycles and making things on a garage and just being able to look at stuff. This pushes against that. This force is outward. And if I try to make it move here, where is it gonna go? Mm-hmm. You know, how the energy moves and is transferred between parts. And maybe that's why if I was interviewing for new machinists, I wouldn't be asking them so much of where did you go to school? Because we can teach you all that here on the job. My answer, my question would be, what do you do in the evenings? Hmm. If a guy says, I got a wood lathe and I make duck calls, you're hired. Yeah. Making duck calls on a wood lathe, there's very little to do. But it tells me that this guy can look at a piece of wood and see a duck call mm-hmm. within that. And go, okay, I need to make it into this diameter so that the reed kit fits inside this end, and I need it to sound like this. You know, yeah. some guy says, uh, I build, a, I'm restoring a 70 Chevy short box on the side. You're hired. Yeah, I want to see someone that understands metal or wood or creating, you know? I, for the first time ever, um, welded the other day. Ah. And it was fun because I was out, we were doing a project at a friend's house. He's a, uh, he's a farmer, but he's a trained diesel mechanic way back. And now he has had a whole bunch of years on the farm. So he's the kind of guy that can fix and make anything you want. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, he's out there. And so he's welding something. He said, come here. So we kind of, he was showing me how to do it because we did uh, just the arc welder. Stick? And then the, um, well, the feed, sorry. What's oh, it is wire feed? Yeah, wire feed. Okay. That one and then the, um, the did the stick too, huh? Tig, one of the two. The tig? Yeah. Oh, yeah. he's a skilled welder. And, Ooh. you know, it's pedal driven. Right. And it was crazy because like, yeah, once you get going, then you can feather the pedal for your electricity so you know how that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just the thought. I mean, I'm not, a, I can sew, but I'm not a, a seamstress either. And that, again, you know, you vary the speed. And so to vary that electricity 
to make that flow was just fascinating. And I sucked at it, but oh, it was welding. really cool. And, and a guy like that that can do it, oh, that is beautiful artwork. I think I'd love to be, and it's something I want to just keep doing. It. I mean, he'll let me come out whenever I want, but um, <laughs> it was really fun. To and just... you're feeding argon gas to it so that there's yeah. no combustible oxygen around your well. And surface. that was crazy because, you know, he said, yeah, it puts gear, you know, throws the gas to protect that fire, that spark. What does that mean? So he turned it off. It's a mess. <laughs> Blowing up everywhere. Well, the nuts. shielding yeah. gas. Yeah, yes. that was Argon really usually. cool. Yeah. So I, I get that. But what I like about him so much is he is, he reminds me of you a lot in that, let's figure it out. Yeah. We'll make it. Let's go make that. And that is cool. And maybe that's the one thing. When I was coming up here today, I was like, well, why does Craig want to interview me? But then I think maybe the one thing, if I can share anything, is I didn't know I couldn't. The philosophy of I didn't know I couldn't. Um, I didn't know I couldn't do stand-up comedy. I didn't know I couldn't build a motorcycle. I didn't know I couldn't. So I went and did it. It wasn't until after the, I messed up the first one that I figured out, oh, I need to do this different. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's a sidecar suspension design I used in my own sidecar that I don't replicate that. Because I, I, <laughs> I used roller bearings on the swing arm to the sidecar itself. Well, the swing arm never makes a full rotation. So the roller bearings are a very poor choice for that. A good old brass bushing is actually <laughs> yeah. a better, yeah, and with a grease fitting to pump grease into that surface. Interesting. So, I, But I didn't know I couldn't, so I went and built a sidecar and then found out, oh, that's why. That's why it didn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's why I couldn't, and now I know. <laughs> yeah. So, that yeah, maybe great. that's the one thing I'd like to pass along to anyone. Is if you don't know you can't do it, go do it. Well, and I, that is one of my favorite things about you. I mean, I, I think you have a fascinating perspective on a lot of things, um, and you're you're nice, which is weird. <laughs> you're not one of the... You, well, and again, we will disagree on things. That's not bad. Yeah. But it, it's, the, it's the method in how you do it, and that, I think, is great. Um, <laughs> and so I absolutely want you back if you'll ever come back. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, in the summertime when I can zip up on the motorcycle. Oh, that'd be fun, yeah. I'm always looking for an excuse to go for a motorcycle ride. Excellent. Very cool. Uh, well, uh, we probably should wrap this thing up. It's, it's getting long. Getting, it's, it's been over two hours now. Nice work. Wow. So, <laughs> awesome. You edit it down to 10 minutes. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, th- this is long form. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do here. We make people have to slog through it, but it's good. Um, anything, uh, any way that you want, if people want to go find out more, um, Lee Brown's on YouTube. Uh, I mean, uh, Lee Brown's the YouTube stuff's always neat, and some of it's into oh, one story I gotta tell because this was so cool. Did you see the YouTube video about the treasure chest? Okay, this is something everybody should do for their kids. Yes, I did. I went and got this uh, old wooden box. It wasn't that old, but it was gonna look old. And I filled it with dollar coins, uh, you know, the, the, the one dollar coins that we have out now with the presidents and Sacagawea. And I chucked a bunch of those in there as well as about $50 worth of quarters. So it really filled the box up nicely. I then buried it in the garden when the kids weren't home. I found a piece of canvas, drew up a map, and I jammed it behind my garden gnome inside the nook of a tree out in my south lawn. And I let it sit out there all winter long until it got good and weathered. And then in the spring, I said, Sarah you clean out that nooch in the tree you got to help me with the lawn work so that i can put my garden gnome back in there so wait she, a second you planted this I planted months in advance yeah about six and months. didn't say a word nope <laughs> so <laughs> the kids uh i send her out there and she finds this map and her joy and 
I think it's a map, and it's on this canvas from this old laundry <laughs> hamper that I had. And uh, it, it was like uh, uh, six six paces towards Polaris, turn to the rising sun. And she, Polaris? So, yeah, this is a North Star, so it was another opportunity to teach her about... Wait, is that a snowmobile? It is a snowmobile <laughs> now, yes. But we got a chance to teach her a little bit mm-hmm. about how things, the North Star, and the, uh, why it's called Polaris, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, and they marched it off and started digging, and there's me on the side saying, ah, it's probably just someone someone buried their cat, you know. It's, you're probably going to find some old bones of a critter. <laughs> and then they found, of course, the wooden box, and they bust that open, and there was some friends that were over about that time. They happened to be driving by. And one of the biggest joys as a parent was she opens that box up, and there's all these coins, and they're from, you know, 2016, <laughs> and, you know. But she just she finds this box of about... Uh, 75 to 100 dollars worth of loose change in here i put in here and uh her first her first action was to reach in and grab as big a fistful as she could and hands them to jeremy who just happened to be her friend who was driving past with her and that and i said what are you going to do with it? just because that it wasn't it's not about money it's about what you can do with money the fact that the value to this was the excitement of finding it, and she wanted to share that with other people. And it was very encouraging. What are you going to do with the rest of it? I'm going to save it for college. Wow. This is a 10-year-old. That's fantastic. And I thought, I think I won this round. You <laughs> totally. Know, yeah, all totally. the things she's going to have to talk to her counselor about as an adult. Maybe <laughs> she'll have this memory about the time that her <laughs> dad buried chest, a treasure right. chest for her. And I let her go about a week before I explained to her what I did, and uh, and, and she did, just did thought, that ruin it or was it no, was it cool? It was all cool. Awesome. It was all cool. So there's a little bit of a longer YouTube video there. So I guess that would be the one thing I'd just plug the YouTube stuff. That some of it's interesting, some of it's my corgi rolling around <laughs> on the grass. So it's not all um, comedians and sidecars. Do <laughs> yeah. you uh, have a, a, a like a? specific schedule for trying to stand up or is that just hit and miss hit and miss um every now and then the goss will have an open mic and sioux falls of course as a bunch so once the weather breaks and i can go to sioux falls i'll be going down to my goal is to actually get paid to do stand up so i can call myself a comedian so you can wear the shirt i can wear the shirt nice and then uh twitter real lee bruns on twitter okay wonderful i couldn't get Lee Bruns, because someone else is sitting on that and not doing anything with it. Well, that's irritating. Yeah. But hey, it the Prez has real Donald Trump, so there you go, <laughs> there right? There you go. And Dvorak, the real Dvorak. <laughs> yeah. Real Lee Bruns on the Twitter, or just Lee Bruns on YouTube. Um, this is the David Allen Show, davidallenshow.com. Um, thanks, man. I really appreciate you coming out. Yeah, anytime. This is awesome. Um. This is uh, the uh, if you want more, this will be on uh, iTunes. um, And this is uh, the beginning of a new stage in the game. Just a little bit uh, for the show. We're going to be bringing in more people. And I do hope that uh, that you come back and grace us again with your perspectives and uh, some thoughts. And it won't quite be as much about you but we'll uh we'll, we'll get your take on some of the yeah. the goings on in the world and um, get everyone angry like a- absolutely no. <laughs> he's wrong right. yeah. i like it I probably like it. am yeah perfect <laughs>
This is the David Allen Show. Uh, thanks for listening. We will uh, talk to you next time. See you later.